0: Now that Ted's done recording, like uh, taking a selfie of his cigar, like a knob job, we can begin.
1: It's documentation.
0: <laughs> what do you have? Like, uh, what, are you gonna make some short film of like every cigar you've ever smoked in like th- in like thirty seconds, just like my, a clip show?
1: My skin so, slowly gets wrinkled and dried out, and my teeth slowly get more yellow and yellow and yellow, and. Look, uh, Kramer, you look like an old catcher's man. I, you know what I should do? I think I should probably get my uh, microphone. Because I'm looking at your levels, and they are through the roof, and mine are, uh, well, let's just say mellow right now.
0: I mean, they look okay to me.
1: Now we're on a level playing field here. It's kind of funny, so I got Freddy's camera here. I'm watching him in, uh, in his room. Uh, but Brynn's decided she wants to rake some leaves. Ugh, and so it, 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 I kind of look really bad right now because I'm sitting here smoking a cigar <laughs> while my pregnant wife is doing all the <laughs> It's like I'm Cotton Hill. Just,
0: just like, especially uh, since you're a week removed from going on a nice vacation,
2: mm-hmm.
0: leaving your pregnant wife alone to deal with your child. <laughs> I feel like such a chauvinist. You should be
1: like, friend. Where are my waffles? <laughs> what does he say? He goes, uh, Peggy. No, Hank's wife. <laughs> I need, I need pancakes for the VFW pancake breakfast. A couple of hundred will do, and all the maple syrup you got. And then she's crying, and she's like, "Okay, Cotton, I will go inside and make you two hundred pancakes." <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then
1: she finds out that she got fired for spanking Dooley. And then he was like, How great it is to spank people. And who is this? It's not Erwin Linkert. It's some other guy who used to be <sighs> Hank's principal. And that he's the guy who gives her old spanky. Right. And uh, he's like, For years I used old spanky to spank many of students, shaping their character, and turning them into the strong Americans they are today. It's funny. <laughs> My dad told me this story when he was, uh, I don't know if he was teaching or if he was a student, but this new principal came in and his office was like right where the kids enter. And he said on the first day of school, he turned his chair around and like undid his tie and rolled up his sleeves and took off his belt and started whipping the chair in front of students. So when they asked him what he was doing, he go, I'm practicing. What a lunatic. What a nut. hey it's kill or be killed in that world think about all the all of the teachers that like won our respect versus all the ones that we were horrible to it was all because the ones we were horrible like look at Morrison Morrison never showed weakness
0: yeah
1: so everyone respected him Uh, but then you look at a guy like poor Mr. Hill who showed a lot of weakness and a a hot temper and we, we were all over him Well, you know, I think
0: part of this stuff comes, I don't, obviously, I don't think they should be able to beat the kids, but like, I think they
1: should
0: should be able to hold them accountable, whether it's through childish name calling or insults or uh, (laughs) like, so for example, I, last week at my, one of my practices, I always end my practice by doing a fly ball tennis drill. So I take a tennis racket and just whack fly balls. Uh, to try to stretch you know the uh, stress the alligator hands, like two hands, you know, cover it up uh, so yeah. it doesn't pop out. And with tennis balls, there's some extra springiness there so it adds to the challenge. And it's always popping out of their stupid gloves. And I'm like, bah! I'll boo the children. And uh, one of the kids was like, Coach, <laughs> Coach, can I catch it with uh, my bare hands? And I'm like, if I remember from last season, you couldn't even catch it with your glove. And one of the parents was like... <laughs> <laughs> so it's like... Uh, they know I don't mean any harm or, like, malice. They know I'm just busting their chops. Yeah. And, and I think that's why teachers should be allowed to do it. And it's, you know, if the kid's going to be shit, don't dish it out if you can't take it. Don't go crying to your parents. That Then they come come down to the school and rip the teacher's head off. Like, remember, I don't know if I told you this. I told my mom how Kim and Eddie booted me out of the class that day. Like, <laughs> I'm like, this prick has it out for me, blah, 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 blah. So my mom goes to the friggin' school with their nostrils flared, guns blazing. She comes home and yells at me. She's like, get it together! You're
1: fucking (laughs) up huge. Well, Cam and Eddie liked you. And he liked me, apparently. He just didn't like the two of us working on projects together, because we wouldn't get anything done. I'm sure he thought one would anchor the other. Like, bring
0: the other one down.
1: Yeah, well, that's why Park Hill got such a good job in that thing that we did, the three of us. And me and you didn't, because... We were monkeying around and not getting any work done. I bet he we're probably to each other laughed the whole time. I bet we did get the job done. We had a funny presentation. I don't know what he wanted from us.
0: I bet Kim and Eddie probably thought you were the one that would bring me down because I was the stronger of the two in this that field because I actually knew what I was doing. You're <laughs> like, I don't know how to edit this shit.
1: I hate editing video because it's got to load. It takes forever to load. So time consuming. That's well, why I got into radio. Do you do re- that stuff. Well, do you
0: remember when we did ComTech? We still had to edit on tape. We didn't even do digital editing yet.
1: Uh, yeah, I know. So well, he, he taught us how to do that old-fashioned one with the actual real to reel uh, on the tape. Yeah. Which they, they did teach us uh, first year in Niagara in General's class. Yeah. We had to do one assignment with the old reel-to-reel on the tape. I remember that. And uh, that was a that was a giant pain. That's how they used to do commercials back in the day. Everything was like that.
0: Well, you want to talk about, like, pain-in-the-ass editing? Picture that yeah. real-to-real cutting, except imagine cutting something like Saving Private Ryan. Or there's just, like, cut after cut after cut, but it's all yeah. on film. You're like, slice, 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 tape, glue, all this shit
1: together. Like, well, have good, you ever seen, like, the real, like, old-school editors, like uh, Scorsese's girl Thelma Schoenbaker? Yeah. You ever see her, like, sitting in the studio editing? Yeah. It's like she's playing a piano. She's doing it so fast and so smooth and so effortless. Well, like These it, people have been doing it for so long. They'll sit there and, like, the director will say, they'll sit there in the room with, okay, I want that here, that here, that here, and just boop boop, da boop, boop 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 Yeah. Well, I think yeah, Sc- Scorsese,
0: I think it makes it easier on set because I think Scorsese is very deliberate with what he wants. So I think he'll yeah. say, like, I want this take. This take was the best. So, like, right in the editing booth, as soon as the film is uh, developed, they're like Scar mm. says you wanted like take C or three whatever and so, uh maker whatever her name was would be like boom psh, there it is and it's ready to go you know what I mean. Huh. Well, we're back. Many
1: technical problems and a few breaks, but we are back. Yes, you are correct, sir. We have revisited Bedwin Soundclash. We did it one afternoon. I thought we did a great job. It sounded terrific. And then all hell broke loose. Yeah, your track wouldn't fucking save for some reason. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry?
2: sorry. Don't my tell you, lunatic.
1: <laughs> I forgot about that guy. <laughs> sorry. Anyway. Anyway.
0: Uh- Welcome back, Canada FM. I'm Brian.
1: I'm Ted. Wow. What do you want, a fucking delay? I was going to do one of those, like, coming, oh yeah, but I always do that, and I want to be a little more subdued.
0: Today, we're keeping, well, I guess, yeah, salads constitute ska, but there are so many other genres. But either way, we're keeping the ska train rolling with the second runaround at Bedouin Sound Clash. And I know we talked about this last time, Ted, but... uh, We'll do it again, fresh. Yeah, uh, we always say that you know this band is Canada's answer to, and try to you know to paint people a picture so they can appreciate. It's like, oh, I like this band, so maybe I will like that band. But it's hard to pin down with Bedouin because they're not the they're not quite the Sublime or slightly stupid or like the three eleven like frat boy rock as people like to say, yeah. um, or beach rock, or as stupid Big jail Okerson o- 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 calls it Queef
1: Rock. Tell him to kiss my grits, big finger glove buffoon. Sounds like Frosty the Snowman.
2: It's Not looking the on that
1: stage there. It's fate, frosty. Yeah, but anyway, no, we're Bedwin Falls. I, they do do their own thing. Um, there is similarities to Sublime in the fact that you know Sublime. Well, first off, they they basically invented their own genre of music by can break, create, uh you know, combining reggae and ska and punk with hip hop, which hadn't really been done before. Um, But where Bedwin falls in line is more the fact that they are very much students of the game and they know their history. And uh, we listened to the In Defense of Ska episode with Bedwin uh, when we were making our way back from our little road trip that we did to Milwaukee. And uh, Jay and Eon kind of said uh, they filled in each other's gaps in their reggae history. So when they met, they become, became experts in the genre. And uh, that is very, very evident when you listen to their music. So I wouldn't even say that there's an American band that kind of sounds like Benwin Soundclash. They are their own thing entirely.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. you could put them on a tour with the Dirty Heads and Slightly Stupid, who they did tour with, and uh, any of those types of beach rock bands, and they would blow it out of the park. Actually, as we speak they're sporadically on tour with Frank Turner and uh, the and the Interrupters. So it's like there you go. They fit in. I mean, granted sometimes those tours are bands that are kind of of like mine
1: but slightly different. Yeah. So, but they're, uh, they're a good example and this is another band that they went on tour with to compare them to just because they're so uniquely themselves would actually probably be Flogging Molly yeah. because even though they don't play the same style of music at all. Um they have the distinction of being kind of alone on their block. Yeah. No one else doesn't like them. Uh, no one else is going to do it like them. And uh, yeah, you kind of have a little bit of freedom and independence uh, when you've established your sound like that.
0: That was like the time when I saw Flogging Molly and Goggle Bordello. What the after party of those what shows? What an was awesome the, show. What's the Vinlo Oh show. my
1: God. I'll tell you. You'd have had a bunch of drunk Irishmen and a crazy Romanian swinging around in a chandelier. <laughs> every time
0: I hear uh, what's that guy, the lead singer, Eugene, so, Eugene Hunts. Yeah, I just every time I look at him and I hear him talk, I just picture Adam Sandler doing
1: the Iraqi mm-hmm. beat. <laughs> yeah, right. He... I love your mm-hmm. boobs. <laughs> okay, I know you do, honey. Brin's, uh, saying how much she loves Gogol. <laughs> <laughs> I again. Love Actually, that was one of the first bands we bonded over was Gogo Perdella. Oh yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, uh, what's it called? Um but yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say and then and they would fit in that conversation as well, where they've got their own, you know, address on the block and there's no imitators. Um yeah, yeah.
0: Let's see. How are you doing there, Chief? Just because we're kind of bebopping and scatting all, all over the place. and trying to pick up where I want in the script. Um, now make sure you edit this part down. Don't tell me my business.
1: It <laughs> looks so nice and professional.
0: We're sitting here smoking cigars. We've had plenty of technical issues all the time. Uh, there's sound. A couple of
1: professionals. Uh,
0: yeah, professionals That's in like what? the 60s, like Mad Men, a bunch of bones. I've been watching Mad Men. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. But uh, so, yeah, as Ted said, the uh, they filled in each other's gaps because the Bedouin, well, the name comes from a... Where is it? I have it here somewhere. Oh, yeah, The name itself comes from an uh, Israeli dove artist and producer named Badwai, taken from his 1996 album. Um, but... Like Eon talked about on that defensive ska, how he came from his father, like his father uh, is from Guyana and he bought a lot yeah. of dance hall and reggae and stuff. And Eon was a DJ early on in his, I assume high school, maybe college over at Queens. Jay loved the clash and the, uh, the massive attack who fused a lot of reggae and dub in their music. And that was
1: interesting cool. when he pulled them down as a, as an influence because you we're listen to a lot of that trip hop. You like uh, Massive Attack and you like Tricky. You you hear it in the Bedroom Soundclash. Oh yeah. Well, if you like, just
0: look at like something like Safe from Harm. Just like that, like. <laughs> oh yeah, great. That that's, sounds that's, crazy, that's very like, like Eon's bass could easily be in comparison with that. So I definitely see it. But there, like, not only is their name taken from that guy, but. It literally is a sound clash of music and cultures. Because, you know, Jay comes from Vancouver. Eon's family comes from Guyana. I think he was born in Toronto, but he was 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 the first one born in Canada. So not only is it a clash of cultures, it's a sound clash. So it it works on so many levels. Now, in defense of Ska, they said they met in Toronto at school, but every article i have ever read said that they met at Queen's. So I'm going to say our story starts at Queen's. Yeah, because we're talking to a bunch of guys from Southern California. <laughs> yeah, probably never heard Queens, New York. Yeah, I thought you were a Canadian. I think to put it in perspective, I th- I've heard comparisons. I think Queens is legit. Like the, it's not quite like the Oxford of the of Canada, but it's a very prestigious school. It's like oh, yeah. it's or it's the Harvard of the North, basically. It's uh, very prestigious, and those schlubs got in, <laughs> so they. You get these kids who love all this crazy music to clash with the putrid stench of old money. Bunch of wasps.
1: What a way to put it. What a way to put it.
0: I don't know. Every frigging jagoff I see that comes home to Hamilton or whatever, rocking a queen shirt,
1: I just, their a jacket. Oh, it Queens Engineering. Boo. Kiss my dish with right it. What annoys you more, Queens Engineering students or master engineering students? They're all cuts. <laughs> I'm just
2: kidding. <laughs>
1: um, no, I mean.
0: Good on him for getting into a, a prog- hard program, but it's just like, you know, There's I, I work with a guy, Pete, great guy, smart as a yeah. Uh He's an engineer at Mac, or was an engineer when he would, graduated from Mac. We're doing the exact same
1: job, so it just goes to show. <laughs> I just remember they, the Mac engineering students would always try to be like the, the bad boys of the school. And, um, there was one day where they wrote out in, like, garbage, beer on this big highway, hill, a hill on the highway by uh, the Hamilton Spectator. Mac A-N-G, E-N-G, beer. And I'm like, what a lame prank. That's stupid. You know what I mean? Come up with something better. Like, set, I don't know. I'm not going to say set the Hamilton Spectator on fire. That might be too much. <laughs> but somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Meet in the middle there.
0: Anyway... They uh, So these guys met, I assume it was probably a residence, but they started jamming, and sometime along the way, they met uh, a jazz student, as their, and uh, that was Pat Penelli, and uh, they started jamming, and basically not long after that, they recorded Rootfire, their debut album, uh,
1: 12 hours, live off the floor. It does make it, and you can tell when you listen to that—that's live off the floor. Because um, that last song is that the one that's "Rude Boy"? No, no. Okay, never mind. I'm thinking of uh, "Sounding a Mosaic." You know the last part of "Sounding Mosaic" where they're like "Rude Boy." Yeah. The last song I thought it was this one, but you can sort of tell this is live off the floor because it does have that very—it it not only has that sense that there's just a, a, like three guys jamming. But also like it has a very sense of loneliness to it you know what i mean like it doesn't sound like they're in a room with a ton of people yeah it really does just feel like it's them and they're playing to nobody and you're kind of sneaking in to try to catch the show you know yeah that's kind of the vibe you get from this one i mean you hear a lot of
0: stories I i couldn't find out exactly where it was recorded uh, probably a local spot in, in where's Queens Kingston um, like when the guys in Alexis on Fire recorded they did their debut album they would hoof it from St. Catharines to Toronto at like 2 in the morning because they knew people who had recording studios uh, free space so they would record from like you know midnight or 2 to like 6 when the next when the first band would roll in or whatever uh, and then they'd go home, sleep or work or do whatever they had to do. Come back next night, do it all over again until that first album was done. Jeez. But, I mean, you, man, oh man. you do what
1: you got to do when you're a new band, right? You got to I mean, live off the floor is a way to do it. You know. um, and uh, this one does, you know, it has it, it took them a little while to get recognition for this one because, you know, when I, when the night feels my song had to become such a big hit for people to go seek this out. And they were largely seeking this out because they wanted to hear more Bedwin and more of what this band sounded like. Yeah. This was this was it, but it's a good album. Yeah. the They didn't really have, if they had
0: a single or something that probably could have been a single, it probably would have been Johnny go to New York uh, because it really set the stage of what would have been uh, sounding a mosaic. Cause some of those songs sounded very okay. similar in my opinion, but uh, with songs like rebel rouser, um, national water, uh, natural rights, and mandrake roots. I think they really showed what their potential was. Those were yeah.
1: I believe uh, Santa Monica was the single off of this one. Santa Monica. Santa Monica. Yeah, was something for that was. Well, Santa Monica. If you listen to it, it is clearly the one that they they put together to try to sell the radio.
2: Yeah. Santa Monica.
1: It's the most radio-friendly one on here, and it does kind of. It, it it's it's different than the rest of the album itself. You know, it, it it kind of stands on its own. You can tell that that's the one that they were hoping would catch on. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, I
0: uh-huh. we talked about this last time. I'm not a fan of Santa Monica only because. Let me preface this by saying I love Jay. I think he's. Mm-hmm. he's oh, he's, he's a cool guy. He seems like a cool guy who just like would be great to just sit there and talk with music for two hours. But in those early days of Bedwin, he just didn't have the vocal range to sing a song like that in like a ballad form. Cause I just like his vocal cords are like strain trying to reach like high notes and stuff. It's just, I, I think he could have done it a different way, but I think I know exactly what they were going for. He was going for like a big crowd sweeping, like they're picturing in five years when they have a huge following, you know, a whole concert of people just weighing their hands, singing that song.
1: Um, That's probably what happened in their early days, but it's not my cup of tea. Now, the first time we recorded it, didn't you mention that they they had stopped playing Santa Monica for a very long time? And then they did. uh, Jay played it at some acoustic show and the people did go nuts for it. He did get that moment of everyone.
2: Like Boy,
1: one. Ted, thanks for letting me stick to the script. Good job. You,
0: <laughs> you to quote, uh, what's his face? In Transformers. You are, right? Avatar. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> um, Root was released November of 20, 2001. And I couldn't find any chart history or anything like that. But the guy who kind of trashed the salads, that Dan Cohen fella, who we said, get fucked. Yeah. He did a, he yeah. did a review, Noosh. and I'll read a little excerpt here. He said, if I were writing this review based on the first two songs, I'd be telling everyone Root Fire' uh, by the Four Piece Doveheads is a must-own album. As it stands, however, I'm telling reggae fans that this uh, is Definitely an album worth picking up. The album starts off, blah 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 blah, blah blah blah, blah. The two songs that follow are incredible mixes of ska, uh, sorry reggae, dub, and jazz, which tempts the listener with songwriting skills and strong playing of the band. That's not to say the songs that f- that follow aren't good. I'd say that uh, they'd say they're better than most. It's just the tantalizing beginning. Uh, sets the bar so high. Regardless, Bedwin Soundclash certainly knows how to create a strong tune. Their seamless inclusion of parts of Money by Pink Floyd in a laid-back reggae yeah. song certainly showcases uh, that ability. The lyrics that fit the style of music play uh, they play as well. You won't find uh, odes oh, the, the finer qualities of be- finer qualities of beer. What the fuck is this guy talking about? The vocals have an English vibe to them. Many of the songs seem UK influenced hence the Massive attack and clash. Um, all in All Root Fire is one of the best debut albums I've ever heard lately. Uh, this album as their launching pad, I can't wait to see what they have in store for the future. So it just goes to show I guess it's all right with this guy if you blend genres but it just has to be the right one. I guess
1: what he likes. It has to be what he likes or what he's expecting. Yeah. Uh, one of the f- big influences that he missed on here, and this might come from like, kind of like that eighties kind of synth reggae thing that they talked about being into, um, it, there's a funk influence on here. Yeah. You can definitely hear. I know there was one song in particular, uh, I believe it was Elohim Delowin, uh, which I, 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 wrote had an Archie Bell and the Drell's like guitar line. And, uh, Jay does this thing and he does it here and he does it on, um, Sounding Mosaic a lot where he like the guitar is almost a second voice. Yeah. Like the bass and drums are going right there. You got to remember they had their, uh, jambe player at the time too. Yeah. So they were a four piece at the time. Um, the bass drums and percussion, they're, they're going right throughout the song, but he just kind of sprinkles in that guitar. Yeah. And kind of choice moments when almost like the vibe hits him. And it is kind of, it is a little bit of a disco funk guitar yeah. that he busts out, you know? So, um, that's one of the influences I thought was cool that was on here, and it really isn't on uh, any of the other albums. Oh, and uh, before we get into sounding a mosaic, we talked about how awesome uh, you know singer Jay is and what a great bassist uh, Eon is. But uh, Pat, their first drummer, give the man his due. Dude, a killer drummer. I remember because I was playing the drums back when these guys were coming out, and I would try to do some of the stuff that he was doing on the kit, and I just that was not that good.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I'll I'll love the Pat. You are not the you're very you're like a metronome you can be like <they> yeah. you like you can do something you like- know what <they st springing> that, that.
1: shout out shout out to brent okay he gave me the best drumming advice i've ever been given What's that? you know what that was doing fills doing the fancy shit travis barker shit it doesn't matter as long as you can keep the beat keep the beat first keep the second uh fancy stuff secondary oh yeah. <laughs> there you go it you know was funny i was watching you keep the beat you can jam if you want to you know create art and avant-garde shit join a band that does that you know what i mean but if you just want to play rock and roll just keep the beat
0: well i mean look at fucking uh what's her face velvet underground that one woman played the drum standing up and i think she only played like just one like bass drum that's how she would hit yeah. it <laughs> yeah it
1: was, just, it was it was it was very light precaution that's just how the band was was designed um I remember this guy in Thunder Bay who I used to work with. He was always like, oh, come see my band. Come see my band. And uh, he's like, I'm the drummer and I'm the lead singer. So I'm like, well, that's weird. Uh, that's kind of like a Levon Helm thing. Or All right, I'll come now. see it. Right? Or cowboy Mouth, another great example. <laughs> uh, you remember the romantics? What I like about you? The drummer sings that song. Yeah. Um, but So anyway, I go to see him. They had another drummer with a full kit. He was just at the front of the stage. With, like, a snare, a floor tom, and a cymbal. And it was just, you know, he would sing. He would, like, scream while he did this. The bassist would sing a little bit. And he did, like, the fuzzy bass right. that uh, the high kicks right. do. Right? And uh, that was shit. <laughs> <laughs> they were very good. Guy was a funny guy, but his band was just kind of (laughs) garbage. You know,
0: like we were talking on the road trip because you had a lot of ska going. And um, like Travis Barker wasn't going to, when he was with the Aquabats, he wasn't going too crazy. He was just doing like steady beats. And then occasionally he'd do like a fancy fill, but like he wasn't going like he did when he got to Blink. But yeah.
1: Because he didn't need to. You know, like that's the thing. Now we're getting a little off topic here, but. Within the third wave ska, and you'll notice this when you see interviews with people like Aaron Barrett or, um, you know, the Lesson Jake guys, all of them, there is this weird, like, glam rock yeah. influence in third wave ska yeah. that a lot of people don't pick yeah. up on. But bands like, you know, Kiss and Van Halen are like important to these guys, yeah. and uh, the Aquabats are no exception. You know, the, the, I know that the one guy outside of ska is big, uh, influences Devo. He was like, if Devo and the Specials got married, that would be the Aquabats. But they also liked the stage elements of um, a lot of the glam rock groups. So Travis really would have fit in with those crazy drum solos had he done it right. there. But uh, they, I guess they may have had him on a bit of a lock and key because he wasn't their first drummer. Okay. So he had to play a lot of the old shit that the other drummer played, and which was pretty simple. So the But again, he wasn't the first drummer in Blink-182 either.
0: The um, What's the face? Suburban legends are like that, too. They love the glam.
1: Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They like the glam. They like the like funk and disco. They've done a couple of disco albums. So.
0: Um, But yeah. going back to the disco guitar for a second, it's because like when we jam with Brent in his old house in Caledonia, like that's all I can play. Because what it is is sometimes playing ska guitar. It's 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 easy, but it's not. Because you have you have mm-hmm. to hit the downstroke and then like lift at the same time and it's it is it can be a bit awkward. Um whereas like when you play like the disco kind of funk stuff, you don't have to worry about pulling your hands off, right? So you can you're just like and you just do your with your strumming hand is where you can kinda of have some fun. So you're like Jay does these little like dink dink, dink. And that's what I do. And I think it's really fun because I think it sounds better than traditional ska guitar. And it's much easier. And it just, I don't know.
1: I was going to say, right there, I take this as the ultimate compliment, but uh, you do, you have a very Jay Malinowski sound when you play the guitar, you know, because you're right. When When we would jam, you weren't playing chords or anything like that. You weren't soloing. But you were kind of like chiming in when you could get something together that would go along with what Brent and yeah. I were doing, which uh, did have a, its unique vibe to it. So I don't know. Maybe you were like a guitar genius by accident. <laughs> well, it's funny. When you when you no. told me, because I hadn't heard of them yet, but uh, you were always
0: talking about Gang of Four. And you're like, this, this is like mm-hmm. straight out of the Gang of Four playbook. And I was like,
1: I'll have to check that out. And Gang of Four is awesome. Well, it's very similar, too. It's that punk disco yeah vibe that uh jay's doing a little bit here but like i said there's a lot of stuff going into what they're doing which i love i love putting a bunch of genres in the blender and just puree well
0: that's the thing right like you listen to anything like like i love punk like i love uh like the 90s like skate punk or the 80s punk but it's like I i can't listen to the ramones that long because it's the same thing over and over again it just gets boring and so that's the thing. If you really fart around with your music, it gets more fun that way. Now uh, I understand that obviously people have expectations, or like this is the remote sound or whatever. So it's like if people really fart around too much, it alienates the fans. But like musically, you just got to get more of a creative um, spark from you know tampering in the studio. But
1: yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know. Like, it's it's weird what becomes a success with critics, because like you get something like this where, where there is a lot going on, especially in the later albums, and it gets largely ignored. Yeah. And then you get something like, you know, the. Well, I'm not going to say the Ramones because the Ramones are coming around at a time where that kind of thing was new, um, but something like the, you know, the Strokes or, you know, I, I think that Jack White is, is a brilliant guy, but uh, it's his, you know, the early White strip stuff is very simple. And uh, stuff like that, that is really simple and nothing's going on. And they become critical darlings. Yeah. So maybe it's just bad timing for Bedwin. I don't know, but I know up here in Canada, they, you know, they got their Juno uh, nominations. I think they won, right? Uh oh, we'll get to that. Well, but, as they say, Yeah. They got some recognition up here, but they should have gotten much more international.
0: They always say less is more anyway. Um, yeah. So let's, they spent two years basically on the road, um, They toured with, uh, well, they toured in Canada on their own, but they also toured with the Slackers, Burning Spear, uh, Vernon Maytone Buckley, and renowned originators of Ska, who we got to see, the Scadalites. Yes. The legendary Scatolites, I believe they're called. So let's fast forward to 2004. They settled in Montreal, the home of the label they were on at the time, Stomp Records. Um, And Bedouin began work on their. As Teddy likes to say,
1: sophomore,
0: sophomore, you putz.
1: You nailed it. No, you dumb-dumb. It's sophomore. We've been through this, and both are acceptable. No. Hard no. Yes, we've been through this. Both are acceptable. We looked it up. I'm sorry. I got you dead to rights on this one. I should have
0: punched you in the eye when I had the chance. Now you're 14 hours old. Nah, but you didn't. <laughs> um, so they brought in, through a connection of their manager, as we learned in that, uh, defensive ska, uh, Daryl Jennifer of bad brains, the yeah. highly influential bad brains, uh, who dug their music and, uh, thought he could bring something different to their, or some good guidance. Like that's really what a producer is. It's, it's literally people think it's like, Oh, I got all these crazy ideas, man. It's half of it is just like, uh, you know, they're, they're watchdogs for make sure the band stays on task and, Teaching them how to play a little bit because even in the, the defensive yeah. squad, he said sometimes. And Rush did this when they created that. Um, what is that one song that uh, was it? Twenty one twelve was something that was created. That was yeah. created, It was so difficult they couldn't even recreate it on their own if they tried. Um, but and some, some <laughs> of the Edwin stuff they created. uh And Daryl Jennifer says like you can't even play this live. So he's like go in the hall and learn play it until you. You actually know what you're doing.
1: Um. It's interesting when you hear that because that was one of the things when I talked to Daniel from Serial Joe. Uh, being a teenager when they record a preteen when they recorded their first album, uh, he's like, "When you are, you've just learned drums, and then you go to the studio and you have to play drums for an album. You have to learn drums all over yeah. again." He said, "It's he's like recording for a tape." And for an album is so different than recording. Well,
0: lines. it's like um, you hear these stories, like when Ramones recorded a "Head" by or was it "End of the Century" uh, by that uh, Phil Spector. He made him play this one note like a hundred times. And apparently, pulled out a gun at one point. Um, he like, was a knife. Okay, he, <laughs> he, he, he's he is
1: a convicted murderer. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, and when if 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 you watch that great documentary one. Um, the hell is it called back and no back and forth uh about but about the foo fighters the bass player nate oh, okay. when they went to record the color and the shape they've because the the first one was pretty much self-produced by Dave Grohl. so when they come they came in to record color in the shape they had a real producer and all these guys were always in like high school low-key vans, before aside from dave who was in nirvana uh, so they never really worked with proper producers so the guy at nate's was said the producer called him and the drummer the rhythmless section, and he says like that should be a, he's like that should be a C. Do you know what a C is? Go play, go learn a C. Like, he he wow. ripped them apart. So they Bedwin had their own uh, growing pains recording this album. But
1: what's funny is that you hear what you said there, and then you get bands like um, Sloan, who are all I know Chris and Jay I believe are both self-taught yeah. guitar players. And uh, Bridget from Flogging Molly, who's got to play all those lead violin yeah. parts, never learned to read sheet music. Yeah. And it's crazy how, you know, you get these producers that are so demanding that you learn your craft with some of the biggest rock stars in the world, just had a good ear for it and just kind of figured right. it out.
0: Well, that's why I, I always wondered if we if we had ever stuck with it and played an actual band, if, if yeah, we had ever played an actual band, if we ever had to go in and record an album it would have been a fucking nightmare. Because, like, you know, I don't remember chords. Like, I know what, how to play chords, but I don't remember which chords yeah. are which. I'm like, I just play what's... Right, right,
2: right, Or when
0: people are like... I listen to uh, the Chris DeMakes one, and he's always talking about, oh, this was a great key change, or This drafts to this, and this goes down to this chord, and you're playing minor, and it switches to the oh, major. Yeah. I'm like, like, I know what he's talking about, but I'm also like, it's... You might as well be speaking Japanese.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's... uh he is – that's an example right there of a guy who's producing yeah. albums. You know, he's a, he, he knows what he's doing. He's a master of his craft. And these guys would become masters of their craft. But for your sophomore album, you still got a lot of learning to do. Ugh,
0: sophomore. Anyway, the all the hard work on Sounding a Mosaic paid off. Uh, it was released again uh, September 7th on Stomp. And then in June 2005, it was released on the U.S. They must have had a deal with Side One Dummy. Um, and in Canada, the album exploded. If you listened huge, if you listened huge. to the radio in Canada in the early 2000s, uh, you could not escape that. It was in stores. It was on the radio. It was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it even found its way as a little bumper on CBC Kids. It was in a British uh, T Mobile ad. It, it was just, it was everywhere. Um,
1: so let me ask you this. Yeah. What was the first time you heard that song?
0: I Honestly, I can't fully remember. I think it probably was on the radio. And I was just like, this is really yeah. cool. Edge 102, like they talked about, was a huge uh, advocate of theirs, playing their song all the time um it didn't take me long to go pick it up because like like we talked about last time we recorded this i was kind of on my not on my way out of ska but i'd like buy ska albums but i listen to them once or twice and shelve it because i was in college mm. and i would start i was really wanting to because people were chirping me about the ska and everything and then like you know people were introducing me to newer well not new bands but different stuff like our roommates were all hippie jam band like all these guys, so they they got me about into more Zeppelin, and I always liked some of the old stuff, but like I never really listened to it. But because of that, I listened to it a yeah. lot more. A um, little blues here and there, and uh, but this was the first. kind of,
1: well, that, that, that was that was we were both really getting into the band that too, that yeah. And I think that the band for you and me, it's so interesting how we both work like this. You know, um, we will. I couldn't when I was getting into classic rock. I it, you know I couldn't say oh Zeppelin's my favorite because they were they're, they're everyone's yeah. favorite, you know what I mean? Or the Beatles or the Stones or Pink Floyd they're everyone's yeah. favorite. I had to find my own band from that yeah. era that spoke to me, and that was the yeah, band. Got- And that the, the my love of the band got me into a lot of the jam bands, and I found a lot of parallels with the jam bands. To the uh, kind of, you know, beach music, white boy reggae music, whatever you want to call it, that was going on at the time. Although Pepper, all those guys are Native Hawaiian, Polynesian, so you can't call them white boys.
0: Well, I remember when I picked up that because you and I both went on a uh, Scorsese and Oliver Stone kick at the same time, and I got yeah. that box set with The Last Waltz. And my, yeah. I remember one time I was watching it, and my dad came in. And he's telling me all these stories about them with Ronnie Hawkins. And I was like, oh, that guy's from Zivko. That guy's from Woodstock. And I, I was like, oh. So there's like the strong Canadian connection with those guys. Yeah. So that just made me appreciate it more. And yeah. But that, that was one that our, some of our friends in college liked the band, but not to the extent that we did.
1: Yeah, they were our at that point in our lives, they were probably our favorite band. But I was still really digging Sublime. And I was trying to – remember, I was trying to push Dan to listen to Sublime because I'm like, you know what? These guys are like where jam band music and ska music intersect. Yeah. And I think you'll like it. And at the time, he didn't like it. And then he comes up to me two years after college. He's like, yeah, somebody band does four Sublime songs. <laughs> he's like, I love I love them. He's like, I love them now. Yeah, <laughs> so Sometimes they take a little bit to warm up to. But Bedwin kind of fell into that camp. And that was what I was going through yeah. at the time. Trying to figure out more bands that sounded like Sublime, and I was going back in the time machine, listening to some. Uh, uh, that's because you know, I was listening. Okay, Bob Marley. I listened to Bob Marley. You know, in slightly stupid and Pepper, but I didn't really have anybody else that fit that bill. And then I remember, oh, it's Toots, Toots and the Maytals. I was getting into them, and uh, I remember when I heard that song, the the harmonies that hey hey. Hey, hey. you know what I mean? How those kind of went. Those reminded me of toots a little I'll I'll never forget,
0: right? When uh, I moved.
1: Not really. I was like, this is good. What is this? And then I eventually found out it was Bedman Soundclash. And I think someone had to tell me their name several times because I kept forgetting it. I had to write it down to remember it. But I didn't really have to worry about that because before I knew it, it was the biggest song in the
0: country. Um, I'll never forget when I was in second year my roommate Dylan him and I shared a wall and he was a he was a weird guy he kept very odd hours and he never he had this huge garbage bag of only takeout like he never ate anything healthy he never made food uh, and so, yeah, he lived like a filth pig. But uh, he had this acoustic guitar. And every once in a while, like, I'd, I'd hear him doing a little, like, uh, I think he tried to do Over the Hills and Far Away. I'd hear that. Yeah. By Zeppelin. But then I would hear, like, the Bedwins I'd be, like, sound asleep. But I'd just hear, yeah. like, the Bedwin. I'm, like, that's weird to wake up, but it's nice. Mm. So, like, everyone. And I'm pretty sure Dylan play, listened to, like, more, like, heavier stuff. But even he got into Bedwin. So, like, everybody. the
1: he was the bigger guy in Dylan and Devin in the morning, right?
0: Yeah.
1: So I remember he had a like a Pink Floyd shirt, but he also had a Big D in the kids table shirt. Oh, did he? So he was like classic rock and like or a hat. He had a Big D in the kids table. So I remember starting to listen to Big D in the kids table and, and then seeing his like patch. I was like, oh shit, okay, someone else here, here likes them.
0: Yeah, he was he was a good yeah. guy. I always liked Dylan. Um, yeah. But anyway, so the the like I said, when the night feels my song, like was the number went to number five on the Much Music. Countdown and it said it, this. This is a weird stat. It said it was the number two most played track in Canadian radio, giving Nickelback's back's photograph and Green Day's Wake Me Up when September ends a run for their money. Um, it remains top five hot AC, top 10 CHR, uh, Canadian Hit Radio.
1: Okay, so this was getting played on stations that were playing exclusively pop music. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, like, because you have to play a certain amount of CanCon, there are some, like, rare Canadian rock bands or indie rock bands that can make it through. Like, for instance, when I worked for um, a CHR station up here in Thunder Bay, we would play, like, we played the Strumbellas. We played, um, what's her name? The girl who does uh, Stompa. Serena Serena Ryder. Um, You know, we played a couple of bands that you wouldn't really think were... They'd think we're more uh, rock, but because they were Canadian, and there's just not a whole lot of good pop music being made by Canadians, right. uh, they'd make the cut, and they'd stick around. And I think we even did play some bad
0: one. And so the, uh, like they they mentioned in defense of Scott, that out that song got in the hands of a very prominent uh, British DJ. I forget his name, but with that with his help, because uh, he was a bit of a tastemaker over there that got played on UK radio. And so, so it got support on BBC One when, uh, when it was first released in the UK in 05. It spent 21 weeks uh, in the top 40, peaking at number 24, and sounding a mosaic reached number one on BBC Six music charts. Uh, and like I said before, it was used in a T-Mobile commercial in England, and from 2007 to 2013, uh, it was used in the bumpers and credits of CBC Kids, uh, because it is very, it's just so, like, sweet, innocent, childlike, so it fit perfectly. Um, it went platinum, uh, over 80,000 units uh, sold in Canada. Um, just the hits kept on coming. <laughs> uh, and it it's, let's see, it was, like I said, 24 in the UK, and it said number nine on the U.S. Billboard Top Reggae. So top right eight. Yeah. So we, I wonder like, what
1: those other eight songs were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably like like authentic, like Jamaican dance hall stuff. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably Beanie Man and stuff like that ahead of it.
0: Um it produced a few other singles, obviously, like Shelter and Shelter's waiting for
2: you. I'm still waiting for you. Yassi
0: went home.
2: There was a woman who gave out her pearls. The ocean rolling, rolled them from the new world. And in the morning, rebel you call, but you know. He's only breaking he the law.
0: And I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't think, I don't remember any other ones kind of being pumped out at the time. But, I mean. Shelter was the big
1: one. Yeah. Shelter was the big follow-up. uh I'm just going through my notes here. Um, maybe, maybe, what's number four, three here? Maybe Living in Jungles? I don't know. I think it was just Shelter and One that I got Yeah. I song. Yeah.
0: Uh, I loved Living in Jungles.
2: When you listen, knock you where you stand. Comes in a beat, come hey. with heat. shaking hey. head to the feet. But I be a go someday. Rather,
1: can you be a ghost someday? I'm already hearing Pat's drumming. I know. <laughs> oh my God, love it. Because usually when you hear this, in like, because I've seen guys, like, we remember we saw Beats, Rhymes, and Life. We saw Q-Tip go track by track. And usually when I've heard a drum fill like that in like the world of hip-hop or something like that, it's 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 done by a drum machine. Yeah. Not by a guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? The fact that he's there motoring. Yeah. Crazy. Love it. Um,
0: but yeah it's it's 15 songs with a couple of uh, remixes at the end but it's you know it's a, it's an ambitious al- second album and uh, it, the, the work the proof is in the pudding because they they worked the cans off and they got all the recognition in the world and they deserved it so it's solid solid second album cuz it's you know it's not easy to uh, i can barely write one song let alone 15 so,
1: yeah. What I love about this album is um it, it very much like Rootfire. You know, we talked about how they would you you were talking about bands like Sublime and uh you know, maybe more not so much Sublime but their their followers, you know, like uh, the Dirty Heads or Slightly Stupid or uh you know, Pepper Valley Who. I don't know if you ever listen to Valley Who, but they're pretty awesome. Um, yeah, we actually missed seeing Valley Who open for Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish because we got there late. Um but they're they're a good band. But bands like that that you would call beach music, right? right? These guys you wouldn't call beach music. This there's nothing beachy about this album or the one before. This makes you feel like you're in a dark alley in Jamaica and you're scared that someone's gonna stab you in any second. You know what I mean? There's a real dark film noir vibe to the first two albums, and I love it. Like it's not, it's it's one of those rare I find the specials are very much like this. A lot of people have told me in the past, you know, I love Ska, but I can only listen to it in the summer. Well, this is an... You can listen to this at midnight in the dead of winter and still get the same effect. Like, it really has that feel to it. And uh, what would be my favorite song? I I love basically all of the songs on here. I think... Or Rude Boy, Don't Cry. I love that one. Well, like you
0: talk about, like, being knifed in a, in a jamaican alley like you look at some of the titles, yeah like criminal like jeb Rand, and uh, you know the lyrics go, yeah. jeb Rand was a wanted man shot down by my i think it was shot down by my brother's hand or something like that like those are yeah lyrics. and
1: that's kind, of, that's kind of very much an eye shot the sheriff into. yeah and that's the thing too when you listen to to marley not all of his songs are about peace and love yeah. you know there are some songs of his that are very very dark that can give you the chills and uh, we always talked about with Sublime how you know when Brad was really singing about his addiction. That's not beach music. Yeah, that's, that can be scary sometimes. The lyrics of Pool Shark are haunting. So reggae might sound nice on paper, but the lyrics can be really, really
0: well. I mean, really, really. Funny. Look at the specials with Gangsters or Ghost Town. Oh yeah, uh, Ghost Town just reflected the horrible conditions of uh, '80s London, right, or England in general. Mm-hmm. And under so, Thatcher. yeah, under Thatcher and just what what uh, they were living through, but it was shielded with this like bouncy kind of like groovy music, and it's yeah, it's weird. It's it's funny how you can hear such depressing stuff, but it's it, well, like, real big fish, right? A lot of their songs are just like angry, but it's it's under this guise of this you know ripping horn solos and other stuff but uh, but that's 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 the thing you know
1: guitar everybody goes through pain and anger in this world we were happy-go-lucky guys when we were in high school but we we were a little angry you know what i mean and um the idea that you'd have this happy music and disguise your anger within that Is uh is kind of what ska music's all about.
0: Well, it's funny. Like I'm I'm a very happy-go-lucky person, but I also have such an angry streak. And half yeah. the stuff, like when like when I coach baseball, people wouldn't expect this like dark side. But whenever I try to write something, it's always something that comes out dark.
1: It's just it's it, that's you know where 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 the raw emotion comes from. Yeah. But I love that on this album. You know, it, it now later they would get into some vibes that would feel a little more like a Western. We weren't quite there yet. But, and then you also start looking into uh, lyrics that they use all over and over again: midnight, nighttime, hills, and mountaintops are big um, in their uh, their music. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Cause it's like with, uh, I think you told me with gas, like Brian Fallon stopped using the words like on the radio and
0: yeah, after you know
1: different girls' names and stuff like that, he stopped using. I I love that.
0: I think it was for the handwritten album because between '59 Sound and American Slang, they really milked a lot of that, like that uh, imagery. So he
1: was just like, "All All right." right." What's the name? The name Maria. He says Maria all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, it's because people take their cues from those before them and like right that's a bruce had a lot of recurring themes like that too and uh so i'm sure he probably just took his cues from bruce and that Hack dylan and all these other people Just you stop it with about that
1: <laughs> jesus christ <clears throat> he sits there i know brent's probably gonna give you a pat in the back because see, when you uh went off them one episode that we did on the beatles and nirvana and how you didn't like either of them brent texted me he was like two most overrated bands in the world. Number one, the, the number number two, the Beatles, number one, Nirvana. And I was like, yeah, you both go stick it. I love you, Brent.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, so 2006, they toured, uh, sorry, riding the wave that summer of 2005, they were on the Vance Warp Tour, and they played 31 dates across Canada on their own tour. Uh, so riding that wave, they they were uh, all over the place, and that was that summer. I guess it'd be September of two thousand five is where I first saw them live. Unfortunately, I never saw them on their own since. Every time they came to town, I missed them. Uh, they just came in February, and I missed them again. But uh, they, I, I'll tell my quick Bedwin story. I was a bouncer briefly in the mid aughts, which is hilarious because when I first got hired, my boss. I oddly thought I was 18, and he was still okay with hiring me underage. (laughs) That's what bouncing in Hamilton was like in the mid 2000s, but I was actually 19. And um, I got to work, it was called Hess Fest, where, and it was basically two nights where bands would play on the the stage at the end of Hess Street, and the whole, it was basically a street party. And Bedwin played one of those nights. I literally got paid to stand on a sound stage and watch him. It's great. That's awesome. Yeah, that's
1: awesome. And I lost my keys. <laughs> it was a whole shit show. But you lost your keys at that one too. Yeah. So about you and reggae shows losing your keys. Because <sighs> you also lost your keys when we saw Sublime with Rome and the Whalers and Pepper and hey, Oh and Ill Scarlet. I found those. I got them back. You did, which was a miracle. You literally were looking for a needle in a haystack, and you found the needle. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Anyway, um, so I remember too when that song came out. It was about that time. Alex and I were trying to one up each other because we were both leaving for the evening, right? Different things we were going to. So I'm sitting around waiting for y'all, and he's leaving the house. And he goes, uh, "My parents go have a good time." And my brother goes, "I don't have a good time. Time has good Alex," and he walks out the door. I'm like, "You think you're you think you're pretty funny,
2: huh?" Uh,
1: I know. And then so I'm walking out the door, and I go, uh, my parents go, uh, uh, my mom goes, when will you be back? Because that's just, you know, how they operate. I said, when the night feels my song, I'll be home. I'll be home. Uh, They didn't get it.
0: Tell your wife to come back
1: out here and punch Mm -hmm. you in the face.
0: (laughs) In 2006, (laughs) they toured with uh, the UK with reggae legend Vernon Buckley from the 70s duo The Maytones. Uh, They also played with Ben Harper, Damian Marley. Who
1: appears on what? One song on uh, Sounding Mosaic, and I believe he's on another song, uh, two songs, on uh, the Uh, the, follow-up. Light the Horizon. No, not Light the Horizon. What the fuck was it called? I got it right here. Stupid idiot. Street Gospels. Dynamite Drop-In, Monty.
2: All
0: right. (laughs) Uh, They also played with The Scatterlights Again, Burning Spear, and The Junction, among others. They embarked on a sold-out thirty-seven tour dates across the UK, uh, sorry Canada, and then across again across the UK. So if you really were like, "Why do I never see this band?" That's your fault. They were literally everywhere. All hey, you didn't have an excuse. Um, this was the when you cut my legs out from under me, stealing my stories. This I'm gonna come back to it. They got to play the Leeds Festival in 2006. Malinowski was ill with... Uh,
1: L- I didn't take the story from you. Larry- I was talking about um, Santa Monica. No. There! Whatever. Calling you a rank amateur. <laughs> um, You're the rank amateur. I can't keep your story straight. I'm going to put my foot in your ass. Go on, go on. Go on. Um, the...
0: Jay had a strep throat or bronchitis or something. Anyway, he lost his voice. And they started playing When the Night Feels, my song. And the crowd completely sang, start to finish And Jay didn't even need to sing a note. He left the stage. And uh, he left the stage, sung again by the crowd as a thank you to Jay uh, for singing when he was unwell. Uh, the band came back. And... <coughs> What is this? The band came back and Jay invited everyone to come sing with them again. Uh, he's like, when we come back to Britain in the autumn, he says, we owe you one. So he's that's he wanted to give them an actual pro- proper performance. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, you know, you hear, a story, you hear a story like that, and then you'll look at things like uh, when Colorado won the Stanley Cup last year, their fight song was all the small things. Because their DJ just started playing it in like the third period and the crowd went crazy for it and everyone sang along. So like the song of the NHL playoffs last year was all the small things because the crowd got into it. And then uh, you know, you'll see other places like Fenway Park, they always play uh, Dirty Water Sweet Caroline. Oh yeah, that too. Well, the dirty water is when the Red Sox win. Right. Sweet Caroline is like right after taking it out to the ballgame. Yeah. Everyone sings along to that. I wonder why when the night feels my song hasn't caught on like that. As an anthem, like it should. It's because I don't know. We need a more hip. I would
0: love if I if money was no object. If I like had a, if I won the lotto or something, and I've just like give me a job for free. I would like beg to be like the Leafs music guy. I'd be cranking out so much good shit. They they not even know what hit them. You would love our
1: music guy. I I want to do these things. And I've even told him, and he he likes it. And we might do it next season too. We are the most, the Lakehead Thunderwolves are the most ska hockey team (laughs) in the world. Because our guy, this guy Taylor, he loves Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish. And um, what's his other one? Um, Come on. Under the Sea. Suburban Legends. Oh, right on. Right? So, yeah, he plays a lot of those. And people complain a lot. Like, this isn't the beach. What are you doing playing (laughs) all this stuff? But he'll play three or four Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish songs three or four each, a game. And uh, it's awesome. And uh makes me happy. But, uh, yeah, we do get complaints because people just want to hear arena rock anthems yeah. at
0: hockey game. Well, can you That's imagine right. if, like, before they walk out, do you guys do anything special, like when they first step on the ice and, like, you know, the, the lights come on and something crazy? Like, imagine it goes black and then someone hits uh, We Will Fall Together by Streetlight.
1: Oh, God, that'd be As cool. they all come out and the lights it's are going, that'd, it's be, it's f- that'd be fucking crazy. Good. I'll get him to add that one next year. He's, he's good like that. He'll add tunes that you ask him for. I'll get him to add that. We'll probably just use it, like, in between penalties or something like that. But still, we'll get that. I think it fire
0: people up. But anyway, in September 17, 2006, they did a performance in Toronto at a rally. Calling for the Canadian intervention of the Darfur crisis. Also mm-hmm. in 2006, they founded uh, the, their own imprint, Pirates Blend, to release their own uh, stuff, along with their side projects, B sides, and hopefully sign other artists. I don't know if anything besides their own shit's been put out, but um, even they, I think they did a re-release of Rootfire on Pirates Blend. Um, anyway, okay. Sounding a Mosaic uh, was. Even though it was released in 04, at the Juno Awards of, <laughs> of 2006, they won... Because the Junos are weird. The, they won the award for New Group of the Year, uh, When the Night Feels My Song, was nominated for Song of the Year. Uh, but they also performed at the gala. Uh, let's see. Uh, Badwin went back into the studio to record the third album of Street Gospels, trying to make lightning strike twice. As they once again teamed up with Bad Brain's Daryl Jennifer to produce it. Street Gospels was released on Dine Alone and obviously Pirates Blend on August 21st, 2007. In the UK, the album was released on August 20th through Side One Dummy. Their debut uh, singles, well, their their singles, um, St. Andrews, featuring guest vocals from uh, Wade McNeil from Alexis on
2: Fire. Push up, push,
0: it, push it. Until we burn in the sun
2: Until we The will just want it
0: Go on the night train and Nico
2: You know I'm not showman sure, I know that you can take a step on a midnight night trail. Walls fall down. And
0: which uh, are all killer songs. <laughs> uh, they really are. And also, above everything else, I know people don't take music videos into account anymore, but it was it's a legitimate art form, and their videos are either fun or just really cool. Like, the St. Andrew's video is literally just... Um, Jay's chatting up some gal at a bar, and uh, the bro starts getting into it because he was talking to some guy's girlfriend and he uh, he pushes jay so he goes to clock him but he does nothing so then the guy starts fighting with jay and it creates a whole bar uh bar fight and then what happens is jay gets tossed out of the bar but it's uh it cuts with him basically getting killed and so pat and and it goes the whole video is in black and white and then it goes in the color where this like the basically it's almost like a like uh, you know, you ever see those memes or whatever the hell they are—gifts the GIFs of those people created carrying that uh, casket, and they're like dancing. It's a it's oh. a weird one. I see it all the time online. Uh, but anyway, so it's Eon and Pat carrying his car, his casket, and it's like it's all colorful, and it's like a Jamaican street party almost. And then it actually, yeah. it cuts back, and it's actually Jay getting tossed out of the bar, and then Pat and Eon just pick them up, and they stumble up the street. Uh, walls fall down was all done in one shot uh which was it starts off with them kind of in a retrospective of uh, them kind of playing on the streets like in the night and then it shows them and they use um people coming by as like moving set pieces to as a transition and they cut the lights uh to basically give way to the next scene because then it shows them in the recording studio and then playing at a party and then it's a whole thing so if you if you have time, check those check all their videos out.
1: They're very good videos. But anyway, this album is another killer. Like this is a great album. Yeah. Um. Man. Oh man. Are they a good band? Um. <laughs> uh, you know what? I got. I got. I say this a lot. I got to go with the uh, the old Rick Flair line. He was talking about the Four Horsemen. Ladies, is that a gelding in the bunch? <laughs> and that's in terms of their discography. Uh, there was a song on here I wasn't crazy about. I think it was one of those Vernon. Uh, I was gonna say Vernon Maxwell, but that was a basketball player. What's the guy from that band?
0: Uh, Vern- money Vernon.
1: Vernon Buckley. Vernon Buckley, yeah. He doesn't he doesn't want to hear that I wasn't too too keen on. But uh the 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 mood shifts a little bit here. It's a little more upbeat. It's actually a little more of like you know how the Beatles have some of those more like bouncy or acoustic ones, like kind of like uh you know, obliged, obla da, or here comes the sun, something a little more upbeat. It kind of reminds me of that, like sort of like an
2: upbeat
1: '60s jam. What are you doing? I'm farting at the Beatles. <laughs> I like compare them to the Beatles. Well, yeah, are yeah. you just to the point where you've taken such pride in being that guy? You got to be that one guy who doesn't like the Beatles that you're going to have to do all this not- every time I mention them, even though it is a fair comparison. Oh, no, you're right. It, it's not that I don't like them. Yeah. I
0: just I, we've been over this. I was raised more on like stuff like the Beach Boys and stuff like that, but. Uh, cause I, I buy American.
1: <laughs> Kidding. This from the okay. <laughs> all right, all right. I was about to go off on all the international bands that you listen to watch. I'm not even American, so it doesn't even make sense. Um, yeah. So walls
0: fall down. Charted uh 27 on the Swiss Hit Parade. Uh, Interesting. on the Canadian Rock Chart 23, Canadian Pop Chart at nine on Hot AC six. Um, sorry on the 23 on the Canadian rock chart nine on the pop chart and six on the hot AC.
1: That's what it is. Um, The album date. They- this might've been when, sorry to interrupt. I can't remember what band it was. It actually might've been one of the times you went to go see flogging Molly. You know how they'll place tunes in between the band's performances. Yeah. I think it was before Flogging Molly. It wasn't, like, the last song before they came out, but it was, like, just before they came out. And uh, they played Walls Fall Down. And the fucking place went nuts for it. Do you remember this? Really. But, I mean, it's
0: a good yeah. omen, especially leading into Flogging Molly, because, let's be honest, after Flogging Molly show, you're lucky if the walls are still standing.
1: Oh, I know. They bring the house down. But this was more the fact that, like, even that audience, that's not necessarily a ska audience. Right is hearing this song and just going, this song's awesome. Um, let's see. It debuted... Oh, no.
0: What just fell? You dropped a sweet drink? No, my lighter. Not my sweet drink. <laughs> the album debuted at number two on the Canadian album chart, selling 8,000 copies in its first week. It was certified gold by the CRIA in 2008 for sales over 50,000 copies in Canada. Finished fourth on the U.S. Billboard reggae charts. Nominated for two Junos Pop Album of the Year, losing to Feist and Video of the Year. Uh, Mark Riccadelli, who made a bunch of Alexis on Fire and the Salads videos, lost to Christopher Mills, who directed Come On by Blue Rodeo. They co-headlined the inaugural Rogers Picnic by Rogers Wireless on July 29, 2007, held at the Outdoor Historic Toronto's Fort York uh, lineup featured a bevy of performers including the new pornographers, the Roots, Tegan and Sarah, the Deers, Bad Brains, Apostle of Hustle, and Little Brother. Um, hmm. in two thousand in two thousand and seven, September tenth, they played at Wilfred Laurier's turret nightclub. This is where the band or the crowd repeatedly asked to play Santa Monica of Root Fire, despite the band's annoyance, referring to the audience as rude to be on your request. Uh, <laughs>
1: really rude. rude. They played it. You know, when you say that to a, yeah, I think I made this joke the first time I recorded, but when you say that to a ska audience. They're probably not going to take that. That's it? true. Especially if it's like some white guy. Yeah, I'm rude. All right. I'm
2: a rude boy.
0: They did play it. Although Jay said it would likely be the last time they ever played it live. And they had yet to play it again. Although Jay played a solo version at a Vancouver benefit concert. For insight on December six two thousand eight, and at the Edge one hundred two won Casby Awards on October twenty second two thousand and nine, uh, they also played the V Festival at Clemsford in Great Britain. They played several songs uh, in the U in the Virgin Mobile Union area. I guess it was the I guess a uh, second area of the venue. Uh, That year, the video for Walls Fall Down jumped to number one on the Much Music Countdown.
1: Oh damn time, Much Music. Jesus.
0: Sons of bitches. I know. it, And I don't know if this was the first time they played Japan, but uh, they made their way over to Japan and played the Summer Sonic Festival in 2008 with the likes of Coldplay, Alicia Keys, and The Verve in 2009. Uh, And I think they might have talked about this on the thing, but uh, they played with Paramore as the opening act for. Oh yeah, this is when they played with No yeah, Doubt on the okay. summer tour, yeah. and they went on to do multiple performances at the Australian uh, Soundwave Festival.
1: Man, getting that, you know you get that huge gig, opening for No Doubt, which you know is going to sell out arenas across the U.S., and they're still not getting any airplay it befuddles me i mean to hopes me like they they, they, they they where they come from not only are they do they do their own thing but they write good songs for pop radio songs that are catchy songs that you can sing along to uh songs that are radio friendly they don't curse a whole yeah. bunch you know we're talking about sex or shit like that um why they just never had why none of these songs broke through down south i have no idea
0: the only place i could probably see them catching any heat is K Rock in L A, and that's only because K Rock. Well, because they're
1: they're known for taking chances, especially with Scott. Yeah, the
0: streets ahead with that stuff, and uh, but I'd have to like go digging through the K Rock archives to see if they ever uh, played it or whatever. But who's got that kind of time? Not me. I'm a big
1: wheel down at the Cracker Factory, don't you know? You're a big wheel down at the Cracker Factory. I knew where you're going with that. Um, A big shot.
0: In January 7, 2009, drummer Pat Pengali, Pengelly, whatever the hell it is, announced he would be leaving Bedouin Sound Class to attend Queen's University Law School. Uh, he was admitted to the Ontario Bar in 2013. I don't know what kind of law he practices. It would have been cool if he'd stayed in the band as like their lawyer, like an entertainment
1: type lawyer, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I think... That'd be cool if just... Next, I'm going to try to get him. I don't know what kind of law he practices, but if I ever run into an issue. I'm just going to go to him and see if he'll take the case. sir. <laughs> yeah, I'm on. a
0: real estate lawyer. Come on. And you're on trial. From- you, <laughs> you can handle a murder case every now and then, can't you? Um, th- this seemed to mark a change in the band because unless uh, unless online records are like spotty or whatever, I was not able to find as much about charts with these guys for their more current albums or maybe it's just their their big success kind of stopped i'm not 100 percent sure but it seemed like uh some of their stuff charted less after this but following all the touring and decent albeit not as astronomical success as sounding a mosaic and all their touring commitments for street gospels uh the band and their managements uh no okay i already mentioned the pirates blend uh the label also dedicated their efforts securing a distribution deal with Sony. Uh, and their first uh, the first album to be put out that wasn't Bedouin was Jay's solo album Bright Lights and Bruises recorded or released in February of 2010.
1: Don't you have that album? I do. Um, what are your thoughts? This is off the top of my head. I don't know how long it's been since you listened to it.
0: It's it's been a bit. Okay. It's uh basically take my thoughts on Santa Monica and like stretch it out over like 10 songs. Uh oh, you like it? I, I don't know. It just, I also I bought it just to support Jay and like the Bedwin family, but it just singer-songwriter stuff for me at that time I wasn't overly into. I bet if I went back to it now, I might have a better Feeling on it because I've gotten into much different stuff, but yeah, the uh, there is a blurb from somebody who reviewed it. Um, what is it? It says
1: after it's not that Dick Cohen again?
0: No, it? I think it was a girl. I forget her name, but I, I didn't jot it down. But it said after five years of constant obligations brought on by the blockbuster success of his band Bedouin Soundclash, Jay Malinowski found himself exhausted, struggling with his demons in the middle of life upheavals at a personal low, which he actually admitted on that uh, defense of Ska. He actually was uh, a drug and alcohol. He was dealing with drug and alcohol, yeah. And Which it's weird because he never struck me as that type of a guy. He just seemed like so, like, chill, you know what I mean? But it just goes to show with
1: big success Everyone, yeah. Big and all these things. Their... Their... Everyone deals with their addictions differently. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, well, I, I go back to Sublime a lot on this because, you know, they're my favorite band and there's a lot of parallels between them and uh, Bedouin. Um, Brad used his addiction as fuel to write songs, whereas I think Jay wanted to hide his addiction from the world. Right. You know, Brad was now junkie, but so was Anthony Kiedis and he had a number one hit writing a song about being a junkie. Right. Know what I mean? And you know, Brad also like if you just about any song <sighs> on that self titled record, like Pawn Shop's a great example, is about and on uh, Robin the Hood too is a and Pool Shark, which is the ultimate song about being an addict. Yeah. Is about his addiction, you know. Um I think that because they had such commercial success, especially the kid friendly commercial success, you know what I mean? I don't think he wanted his demons put out there into the world, and he uh, kept it private. It's kind of like with, with John Mulaney. You know, I didn't know he was a cokehead.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't. I mean, he was very thin, yeah. but you wouldn't fool it because he wasn't like that erratic, like Sam Kinison or Chris Farley type energy. He was just kind of just like, oh, look at me. I talk like I'm in the B-52s. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so swarmy, and I'm smarter than you, and I'll tell it to your face, but because I'm so funny, I'll make you like me somehow. But
1: I'm John Mulaney. Oh. Fuck that guy.
0: You got an extra grind to him?
1: Hey. Yeah, I honestly, I, I've seen his stand. I think he's pretty funny. I don't know. I... And he wrote, he was the head writer of SNL. It's a pretty good season. That's fair. Uh, you can't take that away from him. He, he, he wrote, you know, there's a lot of those head writers, are like, ah, but they run a shit seasons. He wrote good seasons. Anyway, basically she just yeah, said, yeah, yeah. basically she just said
0: uh, he retreated to his hometown of Vancouver to set up shop uh, to record bright lights and bru- uh, bruises. What came of that six months of recording is a collection of songs that, not always consistent, are at times stark and stunning and show a songwriter in his early stages capable of more than a brand he's built so far.
1: So I think... It almost uh, sounds like a big on that one. I know. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. Um, Kind of that smarty, oh, okay, I didn't realize this guy guy could write
0: good music. Well, I I think it's the, uh, because the like I said before, it's basically Santa Monica sprawled over several songs because it's very bare bones. So I, I think he could have added a little to it, but uh, it was an interesting first effort. And I know he got on the uh, – there was a tour that Chuck Reagan of Hot Water Music did. And yeah. it was all these soul like back when Laura Drain, Jane Grace was known as Tom Gable uh, – she would do that tour with him because they're, they're best friends because they're both from Gainesville. Uh, yeah. Brian Fallon got on that tour doing uh, oh, acoustic cool. stuff. Uh, Tim McIlrath from Rise Against. So all these different like punk guys and girls um, would kind of be on these things. So he got on that tour and played a few shows with those guys and girls. How
1: killer would that I be? Know. A Gaslight bedwin show. Good Lord, would that be awesome. And uh, Brian Fallon is a big Ska fan. Is he? He did an In Defense of Ska episode where he talks about all the Ska bands he listened to growing up. And uh, when my brother saw them in Toronto last year, Jeff Rosenstock was the opening act. Oh, yeah. He's a Ska uh, performer. He's, he's a big Ska guy, right? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Fallon's got a big appreciation of Ska music. Did he uh, talk
0: about Street uh, Streetlight slash Catch-22? Because they're originally from Jersey. No.
1: His stuff was a lot of... Um, if I recall, a lot of early 90s stuff that he was talking about. He wasn't yeah, okay. talking about... You got to remember, Streetlight slash Catch-22, like, just missed the boat. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Keys B. Nights was out during the ska boom, but it wasn't a record that, like, everybody had right. or everyone was aware of. It didn't happen for them until, like, the early 2000s, and it really didn't happen for them until... um. It was actually probably when Cash 22 put out their second album on Victory Records, which is a very problematic label. Oh, um, they yeah, the worst. They, victory. Street um, spent like so much money to try to like
0: fight them for their own masters and everything back. Yeah. It's ridiculous.
1: But this wasn't even um, um, Kalonki. This was with their new lead singer. Like they'd already switched right. lineups up. That came out first, and that had a couple of like minor hits, and people were so. You know, the Ska fans that were still around were hungry for something. And this right. band was kind of cool. Because you were looking for that band that you could sell to your fans, yeah. you know, your friends, that didn't like Ska. And Campbell, I used this on him. Because he, he's not a Ska guy, but he liked, like, uh, Live from the Middle East. Right. The Boston. Because that's a lot harder, right? And I used Cash Two to try to sell him on some Ska. And not only did he like um, Catchaway 2 and then later Streetlight, where he became a huge fan of, yeah. Uh, even his brother Tim, who's just a straight-up metalhead, likes Streetlight and Cash Way
0: 2. Well, do you know what's yeah. funny? A couple of months ago, I was visiting my buddy Jeremy in Welland, and he he was the first one back in 05 to really bust my hump about my love of Ska. And, yeah. cause, and he still does. He's like, Bruh. He's like, you got to get some new music. I'm like, what's wrong with Ska? He's like, because it's not Ska. All the bands that you love are, like, basically punk bands with horns. And, because, I mean, if you think about it... well, well did, did he,
1: Didn't he live in England for a while? Yeah. So it might be that English... Uh, 90s ska is not ska. The specials are ska. The real Big fish is not ska. Well, well that,
0: that was the thing. I played him, like, some authentic ska, like the like the specials. And he's just like, uh, this isn't as fun for me. <laughs> but he loves, like... He'll, he'll say, he's like, I love uh, certain bands... But he's like, I don't consider them ska. And He's like, even No Effects writes really good ska songs. But they're punk- yeah, but yeah, there's
1: some great ska songs. But
0: they're punk with ska elements. But I'm like, <sighs> it's just, it's frustrating because it's like a weird like what's technically classic <sighs> ska versus like what's a fusion of punk and ska. I don't know. It's it's a real yeah. It's
1: I I got it. You know, like it's it's weird because the Clash is considered a punk band. Yeah, but I also think that they're a great ska band. Like, they've written some of the best ska songs of all time. Rancid, I would say the same thing. Yeah. About you know, they're a ska band. No, they're they're a punk band. But, man, they have written some killer ska songs. And you know, their roots are Operation Ivy, that invented that third wave sound. Yeah. And if you look, you know, yeah, like, Rancid, the self-titled, and Let's Go are basically straight-up punk and, like, oi-punk. Yeah. But then, you know, Ma- uh, uh, and Outcome of the Wolves is, like, 50-50 ska and punk. And then Life Won't Wait is almost 100% ska. Yeah. And then they went back to the self-titled the black album that everyone says is like the worst album and that was all punk. So, yeah. and then they had uh what's it called the one with the red the red album I can't remember indestructible. What it is, an and that's like 50/50 again. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff on that album. So, I would say they're like 50/50. But anyway, that's getting off the point, but uh there are a lot of bands that do both and do both very well and more power to them. I like eclectic music. Yeah. Uh so yeah. we'll skip ahead to
0: 2010. So, what big thing took the country by storm, Theodore? I know you're not actually a Theodore. Yeah. I know you're not actually a Theodore, but. Oh, Edward. Right, <laughs> Edward.
1: 2010. 2010. Okay, 2010. Wasn't that Biebermania? Maybe, but
0: this is something else.
1: Ah, uh, two 2010. In winter,
0: everyone was glued to their TVs.
1: Everyone was glued to the TVs for two weeks. It was the Olympics. There you go.
0: Even, even Joe, go. Joe, I don't give a shit about sports, would watch the most uh, obscure sports, such as the bobsled and other
1: things. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, Vancouver hosted... Yeah. <laughs> get the most, like, manly men sitting there yelling at figure skaters. <laughs> I can have that fucking triple axel, you douche! <laughs> Come on! Um...
0: <laughs> Vancouver hosted the Winter Games, and Bedwin was asked to perform along with other bands such as Our Lady Peace, Hoxley Workman, Tokyo Police Club, and Winter Sleep. Uh, It wasn't all in one night. Over the course of the two weeks, there was an area called the Ozone in Richmond, B.C., uh, which was a spot for visitors and athletes to enjoy. Uh, So to perform, they needed a new drummer. So they invited the longtime session drummer, Siko Lumumba, who's been part uh, of the... Thornley Edwin in the Picture, yeah. and several other people. I think. Oh yeah, he drummed with uh, Cardinal Fischel and Serena nice. Ryder. Um, was he in uh, Was he in joy drop? Uh, let's see. Not listed in one of the bands here, but very okay. well could have. Um,
1: okay. After the Olympics, that makes me that makes me feel a little racist because Joy Drop had a black drummer, <laughs> thinking, uh, same guy.
0: Uh, well, I mean, he, he he got around, so very well could have. You know, just because you make an assumption doesn't make you racist. You're just, so you were wrong. But you might not even be wrong. wrong. I don't know. We'll have to look that up later. After the Olympics, Jay finished his Bright Lights and Bruises tour and uh, went on to work on a new record. And September 28, 2010, saw the release of Light the Horizon. It had singles like Mountaintop, which did climb to 25 on the Canadian rock charts.
2: Although from to Pedro, We draw lines in the sand
0: Which climb to forty and brutal
2: heart, hearts brutal hearts
0: Which featured Beatrice Martin, aka
1: "Could the Parrot," a dirty French singer. Okay, um, I thought her addition to that song though was fantastic. I thought she sounded great on oh, that song. was amazing. Um, yeah. And
0: remember what I sent you uh, recently? There was that Bedwin, like the that the the techno DJ did like a cover. Of, I'm, pr- yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Brutal Hearts.
2: Um, yeah. Um,
1: that was pretty cool.
0: Um, now, that single didn't chart to my knowledge, but it did birth a new relationship between her and Jay. They formed a duet called
1: the Armistice. Come on, Ted. What's an Armistice? Oh, God. We talked about this. The Armistice is, is peace agreement. There you go. There we go. It wasn't... <laughs> what I say last time? It was an old ship that <laughs> sailed to the Caribbean. I don't know. I
0: think you're thinking of the Spanish uh, Armada.
1: But, uh... Maybe. I was also trying to pull that thing out of Anchorman. Remember? He's oh, like, yeah. I believe diversity is an old ship It's <laughs> used during Civil War times.
0: Ron, I highly doubt the network is concerned of an old wooden ship. <laughs> um... But they did put out an EP, which was fantastic, in 2011. And they actually saw, during the pandemic, they put out a new album. It's on their, on Spotify. So check that out. Uh, Light the Horizon peaked
1: at 14. Ted, what are your thoughts on
0: Light the Horizon?
1: You know, when I first got this, I remember being very disappointed. Um, I don't know what I was expecting. I think I was just expecting something similar yeah. to Street Gospels, you know, to keep going in that vein. Um, I think I know why I was disappointed because I'm trying to figure out where it was. They did, that's it, when they did a, No One Moves, No One Gets Hurt, and The Quick and the Dead back to back. It was two very slow songs that kind of took me out of the album. But upon re listening to it, I really didn't give this album its due because it is a great album. Yeah and uh, the new drummer showed that hey yeah pat was good but this guy's good too you know what i mean he was a good replacement for pat and uh what i loved about it was where you had this dark alley of jamaica feel on uh, you know root fire and sounding a mosaic and it got a little more beachy a little more happy you know there and uh on street gospels this one had, had this total spaghetti western yeah theme, where it felt like you're in the old west and there was that one song um that really kind of played up almost like a sea shanty. Um, which one was it? I thought oh Ilongo, which I thought was definitely written to be a single. Um that that almost was like a sea shanty. So they're definitely playing like this kind of rebellious, villainous outlaw rules in the town sort of thing. Well, this and that might have that might have been something that Jay was going through at the time. But they definitely took that departure. It's almost like now we're off the island of Jamaica. Well, if you think about it, it's way into the west well
0: yeah that's, yeah, that's exactly what i was getting at jay you know jay was kind of escaping from himself and some of his demons and all these things and like trying to shed a dark part of his personality the addictive part and so it's it's yeah. almost like this has a very open road driving through the desert on your way to california kind of vibe
1: it's like the eagles of death metal but a little different <laughs> um, yeah. like it's it's all, it, there's a lot of similarities there to like um you Said eagles of death metal. I don't think it's that, no, but I'm uh, saying that I, they have a lot of driving style music, like, like this album is full. It, of. It, 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 you can almost fall this into a category similar to social distortion. I was just I was how stupid. they've got those, yeah, 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 how they've got those, you know, the, 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 that Western or country, who's that other... murdered uh, by death, yeah, murdered by death. It was actually kind of funny. So, last night, um. For the radio station. We, we have our own beer. I don't know if you know this is the radio station. We have our own beer at the radio station I work for. And it was the launch party for the beer last night. And uh, one of the guys who won VIP, I was chatting with him because he had a huge Social D tattoo. And uh, we're talking about Social D. He got Who did he get to see? I can't remember who he got to see them with. It was a country singer. It was his female country singer. Her last name was Ortega. I don't remember the first name, but I was telling him well, when we saw them, we saw them with Murder by Death. And it was either Frank Turner or Chuck Reagan. I can't remember which one, but we were late and we missed them. Uh, it was probably Frank yeah, Turner. It was. I know we saw it, Chuck Reagan for Gaslight. Um, and uh, he was like, shit, you know, that sounded like an awesome show. <laughs> he'd, he'd never heard of Murder by Death. And I was like, you know, Jack, yeah. It. Lots of songs about murder, lots of really dark songs. Uh, yeah, similar there, because they do a lot of Old West themes yeah. now. Sure, now they have, like, instead of just the one girl on cello, they've added, like, another girl on violin, so it's like a full-blown oh, string section. Do you
0: know what would have been cool? If they picked up the girl from uh, Dusty Roads, Andrea Babinski. That would have been...
1: Yeah, yeah, shit, those Dusty Roads guys. That is the biggest... I Even though they're not from Canada, I would love to do an episode <laughs> on that just to get the word out. Because those two albums, uh, Palace and Stage and uh, First You Live, were two of my favorite albums when they came yeah out. They were so good. And nobody knows them. And they're lost to time. Like, I think you can now get Palace and Stage on. I think they're both on Spotify yeah, now for are. a long time. That weird self titled one that just came in that sleeve that you had.
2: <laughs> yeah. That was it used
1: to be all you could get for, uh, for them on, on streaming. And I was like, well, fuck. I was glad I had the albums. But yeah, like that's. That's a band right there that should have been bigger. But anyhow, we can talk about that later, but they don't fall into what we do on this podcast, but I'd still love to do an episode on that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh anyway, getting back to that. But that's that's the vibes I got from this. They're still in their element though. It's still got that Bedouin stamp yeah. though of the reggae. The Jamaican vibes. But yeah, they're definitely pulling in some outlaw country into well, this.
0: Well, I was watching Moneyball the other day, and uh there's a scene where the one scout Grady gets into it with Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean, and you know, he doesn't like how he's adapting this money ball approach. And you know, Brad Pitt just goes adapt or die, <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's what you do. Cause he's right. You, uh, that's what they did. They adapted, they, they did their thing, but they also did it in different ways. They're adapting to, because you got to remember too, 2010, 2011, that was the start of the Mumford, the, the faux country, the full folk, you know, the folk revival, yeah. uh,
1: all these things. And so, the- that could have fit in well with those tours as well. We still weren't over the Johnny Cash Love Fest because you've got to remember when Johnny Cash died in 2001, there was this, he was one of the still the, one of the most popular acts in music for a good 10 years before it died off a little bit and country had its resurgence uh, in the mainstream. But one of the things people were doing and one of the things that you'd get a lot of people at the time were saying, oh, I don't like that country that's on the radio. I like that outlaw country.
2: <laughs> you know, give me Earl Haggard. Give me, you know,
1: Waylon Jennings, who I can't really tell apart. They're, they sound the same artist to me. You know, give me, give me, uh, uh, what's his name? Steve Earle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Give me these outlaw guys. That's the kind of country I like. And this kind of reminded me of that because they're, they're story songs on here. Yeah. And if you remember the movie Ray, when at the beginning of the movie Ray, he auditions for that country band, he's like, oh, I love country music. I like the stories. i got to make it do with it is. That's what it is. Yeah, but I love that. My dad quotes that a lot. You know, I love country music.
0: I love the stories. <laughs> uh, so it's true. just like us, Slant Magazine and Chart Attack, those were the only ratings I could find were positive. Slant gave it three or five. Chart Attack gave it four or five. Um, it's a... Uh, one of the the slant magazine loved it, except they were kind of crapping on Alongo. Um, it says the album only suffers.
1: Yeah, Alongo, Alongo. You know what? That, that was Alongo. Kind of reminded me of Santa Monica in yeah. the sense that it was clearly meant to be a single, and it stands out in the album. Um, the the the
0: reviewer says the album only suffers when. The group offers a labored rehashes of uh, the saccharine beach pop that has plagued their previous efforts. Alongo is the foremost case in point. A horrendous attempt at team-friendly chart fodder that conforms to almost all the dreadful cliches of any summer token acoustic anthem. Idle chat about endless sands and beautiful weather? Check. A god-awful interlude in which Milanowski sings and strums sands his bandmates? Check. A contemptibly catchy chorus that you kick yourself for singing along to. Check. Mate. Uh, it's yeah, a, it's I, a shame. I had... I, 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 Let me finish. You get me, You're Captain Interrupts. You're getting me angry. You're me hot and bothered. Don't play for the interrupters, Ted, because you are interrupting me all night. Uh, <laughs> it's a shame the single could come to define the album as Bedouin Soundclash are capable of offering so much more than this rudimentary pop jaunt as they prove much on Lake the Horizon's other nine tracks. This is a solid album with a truly woeful centerpiece. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Who's the, who's the person who wrote this? Uh, I don't know. You'd have to look it up, but it's from Flat Magazine. Well, I,
1: I would love to... Okay, all right. The, 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 what an, a piece of shit. <laughs> I'll tell you why immediately, okay? This guy likes this album. Yet he goes and dwells on the one song he doesn't like. Also, pop music is written so you can sing along to it. You not know, if you kick yourself for singing along to the song, the song did its fucking job. You know what I mean? It's a catchy song that you can remember. There's a billion pop songs that even failed to chart that you won't remember in five years. If he's saying he's kicking himself to sing along to with it means the song did his job. This guy can go and fuck himself. Him and that Dan Cohen. <laughs> they can go and fornicate themselves somewhere in the field. <laughs> they can go to that orgy pit from uh, South Park.
0: Just go have some weird human centipede thing, except they're connected by the wiener. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's but the thing is, sometimes if if you something really doesn't jive with you, it is it's enough to make you shelve an album, right? Where you don't return to it because like that's the thing that leaves. This, maybe that's why I didn't return to this album as often either, because I also wasn't a big fan of go either. So sometimes that one song
1: is just like souring up for you. You never know. You know what? I have never abandoned a song from one album. Shit, I got ten percent on my phone. <sighs> okay, um, we should probably get to mass pretty quick because I can I can do. We will meet in a hurricane without my notes, but I might I'm gonna need my notes. Hold
0: your math. fucking horses. <laughs> <laughs> May tenth, twenty fourteen, the band's original lineup reunited for a performance at the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto. The show was a cystic fibrosis fundraiser held in the memory of the band's friend and agent Paul Gourley Gourley? Um, in 2016, they started working on a new album in Nolens, uh, with excuse me, with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band and King Britt as the producer. By now, Labumba La had left the band and been replaced by drummer Chuck Trees. Um, in 2017, they released "Clockwork" as their first single in seven years. Since but I think it's just some body work. And uh, ch- uh, clockwork started, uh, it charted at 45, uh, at 45 on the album charts. <laughs> like, good Lord, on the singles charts, is what I meant to say. Uh, the only single to do so, when speaking about getting back together, Jay said, the only way we wanted to p- start playing together again is if it, we were creatively inspired. We didn't want to just play some reunion shows. We wanted to actually feel vital on stage when we did it. And when you heard about them talk about, like, we will meet in a hurricane, they didn't touch on Mass so much, but they truly were inspired when they went to record uh, We Will Meet in a Hurricane, but we'll get to that in one second. Uh, Mass was released October 4, 2019, after nearly 10 years. I'm sure Bedouin fans were, were like, what would they do? Well, this is definitely not a typical yeah. Bedouin album. A lot of their albums have a bit more of a stripped-down, mellow feel. Uh, needing This one needing a little extra musicians.
1: Uh, this album is very different. Ted, your thoughts? One thing that I loved about this album was track to track when I was going through it. I was never sure of what I was going to yeah. get. And I like that. I like that excitement. When you listen to one track and then you listen to the next track and it's totally different. You're like, Oh shit, what's coming up next. You know uh, what I mean? And it did kind of get towards the end. Okay. Now I understand what this album is about. I get where they're coming from here, but it's a good album. It's a very good yeah. album. And um, it, it's, I don't know if it's, I, I, I had this, I can't remember where I had it in my big ranking of it. Cause it's been so long since I listened to it, but on this disc, you know, they've got some Motown influences. They've got some hip hop influences I wrote that the one song uh, when we're gone kind of reminds me of Terrence Trent Darby. <laughs> <laughs> and you can imagine that, uh, they had tracks that sounded like the Arkells. They had some Latin vibes in there. They had a song that reminded me of Lady Smith Black Mombazo. They had horn sections. Finally, we get to hear them with a, a horn section. Um, yeah, like this was, this was a really, really cool album. And, uh, and catchy, not really reggae at all, and not really like a, a song, an album that sounds like your typical Bedouin album. But well, the- after 10 years, and where the music scene has kind of shifted, um, it does kind of feel like a natural progression for yeah. them. So it, it got a thumbs up for me, and uh, I really liked it. And uh, there's a couple tracks on there. Yeah, there was a couple tracks that didn't work. I remember the last song didn't work for me. Um, and I was disappointed, too, because... That was the track that featured Cree yeah, Summer, just like you. Yeah, yeah. now Cree Summer—I don't know if you know this—is an actress, an uh, vo- uh, extremely talented voice actress. Uh, she did um, all these voices on like Tiny Tunes and stuff like that. And back, remember Myra from Tiny yeah. Tunes? You know, ooh, right? She did that, and uh, she was on the TV show Different World. And her brother is Canadian. She's not there. Uh, he's rainbow son. Frank's is her brother. The former March music <laughs> DJ. If oh, you yeah. remember him. Yeah. 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 And uh, half indigenous, half black. And uh, both of them are, but they have different uh, parents. But yeah. And uh, I was really looking forward to that track, but uh, she barely sings hmm. on it. And I was like, "Oh shit!" I was I was kind of hoping to see what she brought to the table. Kind of a sing. waste waste of having you? someone on there. It was just, just backup vocals, and I guess we, what we learned by listening to uh, In Defense of Scott, uh, that version is they will turn to their friends a lot for like gang vocals and stuff like that, and you'll get big names on a Bedouin album who you don't even realize they're yeah. there. So I almost wish that they didn't list her as a featured artist because I was expecting to hear her more. Because I didn't know what her singing voice sounded like, I just know her from her voice acting. So it was a bit of a letdown. But the rest of the album is really good. I love the song they did with the Preservation Jazz yeah. Band. Uh, I was excited to hear like an upright bass in that, and I was like, "Oh shit!" You know, Eon's breaking out the upright, but it was actually done by the Preservation Jazz Band's upright bassist. You know, Eon plays the electric right. bass, but they had the two bass attack, which always kind of sounds cool. Uh, but yeah, no. This is a really good album and a really eclectic album. I I, yeah, I was a huge fan of Born in the Bad Times,
0: Holy uh, Drive. That was another kind of dri- like like it says it's uh driving in the city. You know, it's dark, it's raining. That's that's the kind of vibe that they were painting there. It's really good. Saint Jude of the floor. Yeah, um, and Better Days. Love those songs. And Saltwater is great too. It's just top to bottom. I remember when I saw this at the record store, I was like, holy shit, because I was back when I was still buying CDs and there was less on Spotify. But I, I ripped it onto my phone, uh, onto my computer and put it on my phone. I was literally going for like a walk because this is a longer album. It's like, what, seven, 14 songs. It's almost an hour. I was just going for a walk to listen to it top to bottom. Big smile on my face. <laughs> it's
1: a great album. And uh, I didn't expect it. I didn't even know of its existence. Because so I think I texted you about and, it. And you're uh, like, oh, nice i it. do. you <laughs> part of the discography. Yeah, yeah I, didn't think, I, 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 I slept on that. Because um, I got excited about Bedwin again. And we'll get into this one again, To uh, We'll meet in a hurricane. When I started hearing tracks from that album last year. Because I was trying to go over. I found a great list. Of all the great ska releases from last year, uh, it was Do the Dog fanzine that I sent you some of the yep. playlists that we listened to on our road trip today. They covered that extensively. This guy, every single Bedouin album except for uh, Mass has made his year end list. Cool. Um, yay, this guy's a big Bedouin fan, lives in England, and uh. Mass didn't make it, but man, Mass is a good album. I think Mass didn't, I don't know, but he's got a lot of like non ska albums on that list. Yeah, because so. that's the thing. It's hard. Uh, it is hard. To, know, you're just a guy to the guy in the Don't sleep on Mass. Mass is a good
0: album. Yeah, uh, just just business. know going in. It's not really a Ska album. It's more of a jazz album, but it's also very eclectic. But it's still, it's got the seeds of Bedwins, uh, you know, uh, planted in there. But, you know, every band is allowed to do something different. Just like look at The Clash with Sandinista,
2: right? Yeah.
0: Um,
1: yeah. So uh, there's a children's chorus in Sandinista. Yeah. Like, and usually, that was, you know I found out today about Sandinista? That's it. I think it's uh, uh, Hitsville Hit yeah. K. Is that the song? The girl who does the singing in um, Paradise by the Dashboard Light sings on that yeah. song. I didn't know that. And I've heard that song forever i didn't know who that girl was i thought it was just that girl that always teams up with but uh, yeah she does that and she was apparently a big deal in, in, in the uk so well that's well, something else um all right so 2019 they
0: spent the bulk of it touring with modest yahoo until the uh, pandemic brought things to a grinding halt uh for a few months and then when things started to open up they went back on tour uh we will meet in a hurricane was released in October twenty-first, uh, twenty twenty-two, again through Dine Alone. Uh, singles were Shine On featuring the amazing skints from England.
2: And on, 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 on. All around the world they keep on in shame. The news anchor repeats it every day.
0: Uh, something lost, something found. uh was it walk
1: walk through fire the one with amy walk through fire One like if if i check out my spotify yeah. it's next december that has a good chance of being my number one song. Yeah. but they might need
2: that flame on the game, so they can touch the ground someday
1: love that song it's so good my god is that good and uh they bring it up immediately on the in defense of scott uh podcast i know we're ripping off another podcast as well it's it's like when i did the salads i i relied on a whole other podcast to fill in a lot of gaps (laughs) yeah but they talk about the the soul influence or the gospel influence on this album and that is very present like the just the melodies are very gospel and the big choral vocals are extremely gospel and uh it really makes for you know it's interesting that they kind of abandoned the ska and reggae on mass and then they did an album that is for my money one of the best ska releases to come <laughs> out in since maybe what was the uh, Streetlight album that just has the the park oh, headshot?
0: Um, I forget what it's called, but it was in
1: 2013. So that was like almost 10 years. Yeah, so it's been like in a decade. Maybe that that might be the best album in a decade. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, that good. Um, what were your aside from those
0: singles, which were all fantastic? Oh. What were your uh, what were your standout tracks on
1: that? Oh God, you're making me open this up.
0: I thought you said you can talk
2: about well, it. I, love it your phone. I,
1: I, I lied. I was just gonna make generalizations. Um God, I think I loved every single and song. And also I that heard. Streetlight album is called The uh, Hand The uh, Hand. I did Deep. I did write Walk Through Fire. Walk Through Fire, currently my favorite song of the world, I wrote. Um man, nice and bouncy, a bit of a disco vibe. Super beachy. Ch- the, the closing song was their best closer. Actually, I thought they kind of had some issues with the closer. Uh, there's a lot of U2 on this. Did you notice that? A lot of U2 influence on here? I think so. Yeah, yeah, because I know they're U2 fans because they, they covered uh, New Year's Day as a non-album right. single. That was really, like Edge 102 and stuff like that. That was a big thing. I'm sorry, I can't really go through the tracks because yeah. I liked all of them. Uh, um, but... Yeah, that's that's what that's kind of where I'm gonna leave this off. I know I'm being a little bit non specific here, but just tune in and enjoy, you know. It it's it's something if it was possible for Bedwin to get more melodic, they got more melodic. And for someone who loves melodies and hooks in his music, you know, I love the old Motown stuff, I love all that shit. This falls right in line with that. It, it is. I mean, it is natural that because
2: like you, this you goes look all at around.
1: certain
0: filmmakers, right? You look at their early work. Some of it's amazing, and then they hit like a bit of a lull, and then they they get creatively inspired again as they get older. They make some of the better work later. So it's this is no exception. Sometimes, sometimes people yeah. just take music for granted, and like I'm not saying they half-ass it, but they they don't fully look back to what they really drove them. And and sometimes you got to go back to uh, you gotta go to the past to like redefine your future, and
1: they've done that very well. <laughs> I do want to ask you a question in relation to uh, yes. Bedouin. Now, this was their first album. They you really, um, yeah they waited ten years between masks, but this was like the first ska yeah. they put out for reggae. Um, for their next album. Are you like yeah? I need the next album now. Put it out now. Are you are are you like with your hands up? Like you know what, Jay? I trust you, and Eon. I trust you. When you guys are ready, put it out because I'm sure it's going to be fantastic if you just put it out when
0: you're. ready. I think it's one of those things like like Jay said in the interview. It's like they have to feel ready for an album, and yeah, like obviously yeah. not to take anything away from their first three because those were all put out in pretty quick succession every couple of years. Um, But, you know, you get some of these bands who crank out albums way too fast, and it's just like, I get it. You know, album tour, album tour, that's the thing. But if you take your time on something and you put your love behind it, the fans will come. And, like, they've been selling out all their tours, and they're building more fans through the Interrupters. And so I I think by the time they put out their next album, I think the – They might finally get that. They might not still break in the States. I mean, the Interrupters Tour will help. But, like, they even said in the defense of Scott, (laughs) they lose money when they went to the States in the early early years. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I think they – sorry, I'm running around the question. I mean, it's not like back in the day when we were at a Marvel movie. You know what I mean? Like, oh, Iron Man 2 ended. I want Iron Man 3. Or cap ended, I want cap two, like right now. It, you gotta let them go through their process
1: because if it's rushed, uh yeah. then to... Well that that's 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 different because they were telling long form stories with those movies. You know, this is they're making music as a concept. Yes, to but that. that's what and I believe Jay said one of the tracks, I think it was Walk Through Fire, he had that melody in his head since the late two thousands. And you know he had written it. He just had that fire, fire, and rain. that's all he had. And they wrote the song around it, and then they wrote the lyrics right. to match that. And that was like their manager, who was like this fire thing that you have. Go for it, you know, keep right. leaning into it. And that for me is the best song of the album. Like that's just yeah. Such a it's so song. it's one
0: of those things. Um, like we don't know. That took like ten years to put together. We don't know what's in there unfinished tracks. Like, for all we know, there could be a whole other 10 tracks of Castaways that they just need to, like, you
1: know, tighten up.
0: Now I can hear you, but you're frozen.
1: okay. Now you're, you're kind, of, kind of coming in spotty with the visuals. But, okay, Sorry. now you're good. Now As you're I good. was
0: saying, for all we know, because that was such a fruitful recording experience when they did this, because it was partly through the pandemic, uh, but they might have a whole other dozen or so tracks that were castaways from these recording sessions, right? That they just need to tighten up or revisit. So they might have some good stuff on the way. They just need to, you know, go through it a little bit. Or maybe they just need to hold blank slate and be creative. But I to answer your question in the very longest form possible. Um just trust the process. They haven't they've seldom disappoint. And it it's like you know. Remember when we would always bicker about QT versus Spike Lee? I'd say, ah, Spike Lee's better. No, Spike Lee's like Prince. He cranked out too much, and when he did, when he would hit, he would hit great. But then when
1: uh, when he was
0: too prolific,
1: it stunk. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He's you remember the good ones, but he's done a whole bunch of like not so good ones that no one. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You remember. You remember, uh, you know, you do the right thing, and you remember uh, X, he got yeah. game and Malcolm X and Black Klansman's Most recently, but you don't real you don't remember. Uh, like yeah, you remember Black Clansmen and probably like the the Five Bloods, which had a lot of uh, hype around it, but you don't or remember Kricklin. Red Hook Summer <laughs> yeah. or Chirac or anything like that. But uh, or Crooklin. Well, you know, people some people like Crooklyn. He's he's been uh, he's been going off on Crooklin recently on. Uh, Oh, really? On uh, social media. He loves that movie. and uh, Although Spike oh, yeah, Lee probably said it's... I think, no, no. The musical that he did was... Uh, was Crooklyn cr- a musical? I know
0: School I Days remember. was a musical. Spike Lee strikes I, me as the type of guy who's like... I mean, obviously, you should be proud
1: of all... Crooklyn also has Delroy Lindo as the lead. And Delroy Lindo, for my money, is one of the best actors to never uh, be nominated oh, great. for an Academy Award. So... Right that point in the episode where we try to figure out here on Canada FM why, why Bedwin Soundclash didn't make it bigger in the U.S. Um, here's my theory. If you're ready for it, <laughs> I think that they debuted, especially with "When the Night Feels My Song," at a time when the U.S. just they wanted kids, not kids, they're yeah, not adults, but like kids kids wanted music to make them feel miserable okay yeah. emo was big at the time uh for some reason like screamo was big the Christian screamo core was big at the time like it was just one of these things where it was you know that landscape of punk rock and what was marketable to kids did not include um highbrow reggae uh, <laughs> like like what, what bedwin brought in And like, you know, even like bands like Slightly Stupid and stuff like that, they had their followings, but they weren't, um, they didn't have any like success on the charts or commercially really at all. And I think that people either looked at them as, oh, they're one of these guys, there's one of these white reggae bands, even though two thirds of the band is black or they, uh, what's it called? They, they, they were just too upbeat and too cheery for them. You know, there's, there's something about that. And then. I, the one thing I'm having a hard time with, though, is because that song appeared in commercials and TV bumpers all over Canada and the UK. Why it didn't catch on like that, like a song you'd hear at the end of an episode of Chuck or something like that? You know what I mean? Like, why wasn't it getting weren't they getting played in movies or TV or commercials? That's where I'm kind of scratching my head. Because even bands like you know Gaslight Anthem and Flogging Molly and some of those other side one dummy bands. They got a lot of commercial airplay. Well, I was Just thinking as you, like that.
0: as you were talking, I was uh, I was thinking. Well, we, you know you got to put everything in, in time and place, right? So why was Ska hitting when it did? Because you know scenes go in about four or five years, right? And the Ska boom and happened, so they were on the the bottom crest of the Ska wave in the early to mid two thousands. And what, um you know we were in 9-11. We were fighting... The, the Americans were fighting in, like, two different wars <laughs> across the Middle East. Yeah. So, like you said, people were not in the greatest of spirits. Tensions were at a high uh, globally. So, you know, what was popular? Screamo? And also, who was kind of coming up? Kind of moody indie rock stuff, like Coldplay, uh, you know, the Decemberists, like yeah. bands like that. Muse were starting was there.
1: big at that time.
0: Yeah, Muse. Yeah. Uh, so it was,
1: like, either... It was either
0: yeah, so... It, and it's yeah. not, not to take anything away from anything, any of those bands. They're all great. Um, but, and it's actually kind of funny. You look at a band like Muse, Matt Bellamy always gets uh, mistaken. People try to claim him on the right. They're like, look at this guy. He's a conspiracy nut like us. Ah, and he's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I know there's stuff going on, but don't bump me in with you nut yeah. <laughs> you
1: know, it's, it's kind of funny because I was reading a thread on uh, the Ska Reddit page where they found this, uh, What's it called it was, it was something like uh, it was it was like you know conservative politics for uh, fans of ska and punk and it, there was these people who liked like all these bands that we liked but they were trying to find gateways in there and then people were like well how can when you listen to this music this so overtly political and so overtly left like how how would you be you know be a fan of it and then still be a fan of like Trump or something like that and someone was like if you listen to Bad Religion's lyrics without any context whatsoever and you are hoping that they're going to be right you're going to find those uh, right-wing connections in their music.
0: Well, actually, you know? when we when we were driving up to the airport to see you last week, yeah. um, a song called "The Press Corps" by Anti came up, and you know it's all about how the media lies,
1: right? Yeah, and this so, is a perfect example right there.
0: So someone could say the media lies, right? And so by all accounts, during the COVID pandemic, you know, you know, trust the science, do the social distancing, the vaccines work. By all that aspect, anti-flag should have been on all those anti-sides because they're like, the media lies. You can't trust shit. But you know they weren't. So it's just like they, – They wrote that song in
1: like 2002 or something like that.
0: No, they well, they wrote it like in – it was off their 2006 album. but Okay, two thousand six. 2006. Yeah, either either way, they, wrote it, it was, they wrote it in a different
1: era, basically. Yeah. And, uh, of course, like you listen to Stuff Without context. I saw – I, I read an article that was just kind of like – they're basically trying to alert everyone to um, uh, Amy Interrupter's history with uh, like the Alex Jones podcast and stuff like that. And they were like, "Well, look at their lyrics. These guys are all about uh, paranoid uh, conspiracy theories with the police coming knocking and all this stuff. You know, who you can't trust the government." I'm like, "That's every fucking punk song. It's yeah, well, not. You know, they're they're not aligning themselves with anything here. And you know, if you listen." You know, Amy's had her past, but uh, the brothers there—three of them—they're very uh, about uh, you know anti-racism and anti-homophobia and all that kind of stuff. You know, well, the other thing is,
0: none of her lyrics in the past has she ever come out pro any of that stuff. The only the only thing she really championed for, because. She, was, she did a song for Ron Paul back when he was an yeah, indi- yeah. independent. He wasn't even running as a Republican. He was an independent. Right. And it was more about smaller government and just like kind of get out of my back, Jack. You know what I mean? That's what yeah. it more, It's more about indi- individual freedoms instead of the government having their frigging boot heel, which everyone can appreciate. And uh, it was also
1: done in like 2008. Yeah. When the world was a little bit of a different place.
0: But also, I mean, this this is the thing, and this is where, like, politics gets lumped in. It's like you could still be – you know, you could be a Republican or a Democrat and think gay bashing is no good. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. It's yeah. just people blur these things, and it's just stupid because that really – who you vote for, no politician – I know we don't usually talk politics, but no politician perfectly embodies everything that you believe. That's why you vote. You basically hope this guy's got my best interest or this girl has my best interest. And you're casting basically a wing and a prayer that this person doesn't fuck the city or the country or the province up further than it
1: already is. Well, you learn that basically, and I can only speak for Canada. You're basically voting for one cog in the big machine. Exactly. you cast your ballot, Um, and then you hope that that cog that's speaking for you does the right thing. Exactly. And does enough that with those other good cogs that you're hoping for to make a difference. Yeah. When sometimes there could be a whole bunch of cogs on the other side, and they cancel each other out, and nothing happens for four years. Well, not only happens quite a bit. (laughs) Not only (laughs) that's actually the case.
0: Well, I forget, is it the federal election, like, when the municipal stuff comes up and all these things, like, uh, because on the lower level, you might have someone who's, like, a liberal who's terrible, but then, like, the the conservative on a grander scale might be better, so you're just like, well, I don't know who to vote for now, because one, again, it cancels On, on my lower level, you know, I need stuff done around
1: my young Yeah. I think this guy sucks. I don't want to vote for him, but, you know. This is why I always said we should cast two votes. Yeah. That's that's
0: the one system where the states has us where You can
1: actually pick. There's a theory going on, and this was something um, that came up during the last provincial election. Uh, Del Duca, who was running for the liberals, he pitched a ranked ballot. Interesting. So you would fill out your ballot and you'd basically say, all right, you know, my first choice is, you know, the liberals, then it's the NDP, then it's conservatives, then it's the green, then it's whoever else, right? You'd have to rank your selections and then somehow that would determine the number of seats that each party would get. Interesting. Uh, it's very confusing. I don't know the <laughs> ins and outs of it. He did not win. He yeah. didn't win his own writing, so that idea is kind of out the window now. But uh, it was something that I was like, I'd like to hear more about it Yeah. before I get on board with it. Yeah. Uh, but uh,
0: shifting back into Bedouin talk. But yeah, so the the, the musical landscape was changing. Uh, you know, mid-2000s saw the rise of certain hip-hop acts. Again, um, would you say that was the era of the b- butt rock was starting to take over too,
1: or guitar rock was was starting to take over? But it was more yeah, like- there was it, it. It kind of started there. Um, it kind of started there. That kind of guitar radio rock, uh, the uh, you know, Buck Cherries and uh, Velvet Revolvers. Yeah. of the world, and he, yeah.
0: well, even like Foo Fighters continue to have a huge uh, like dominance on the, the top of the charts in that era with a couple of solid albums. So I think it's just oh, yeah, yeah. they got
1: the of those bands that never went away. Like yeah. Foo Fighters, the Chili Peppers, and Green Day. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, there's a combination of those things as to why they just couldn't catch. Um, and like, well, like when we got to talk to Mister D, and I, I'm I'm really pissed that the the it didn't quite work. I'm, I'm going to st- still work on it if I can salvage any of it. But uh, like he even said, he's just like, there was someone in our corner that got our music to the right people. And that's how it ended up in Euro trip. And, yeah. and like, you know, Bedwin might've already had their lucky streak finding their music in the way that DJ in England, but maybe there was just no one in the States that would be their Like kind of advocate or like maybe, I don't know, movie, like whoever does the music and movies and stuff, Either they weren't cool or they were trying to be too cool by putting all this indie
1: shit in their, in their movies and stuff. that's the thing. Like, like there was lots of movies that had bands like Flogging Molly in it. And, um, you know, Less Than Jake would pop up in a movie here and there. You know what I mean? Uh, what was the movie? Me and uh, Bryn were watching Lady Bird when it came out. Less Than Jake popped so
0: Good Burger and Scream 2. Yeah. Those are the only times I've
1: heard Less Than Jake in a movie. Okay. But hey, so this movie Lady Bird takes place in the 90s, right? And uh, it's this independent, arty film. It was kind of funny because I thought that Bryn would love it and I'd hate it. But it was actually the reverse. She hated it and I loved it. Interesting. Uh, But there's a scene where they're kind of having a party. And they play Snoop Dogg Baby by Real Big Fish. Nice. And I went, oh,
2: God! It's Real Big Fish!
1: And then she's she's like, I have never seen anyone get that excited about a band they like being played in a movie. Before. <laughs> and I just didn't expect to hear them there. Apparently they play a little bit of Sublime in Burt Kreitcher's new movie. So
0: <sighs>
1: I think it's Santa Rhea, though. Of course it is. Or as Burt Kreitcher would say. <laughs> did I ever send you funny.
0: Did I ever send you that clip of him and Segura laughing about the Kool-Aid?
1: Yes. It was hilarious. <laughs> And it's funny because he's so matter of fact about it. Like he's he doesn't think it's funny.
0: Yeah.
1: He's like, "Cool, yeah, it's fucking awesome."
0: And sugar Sig- is um, just laughing at the absurdity of how much sugar that is, and how it's lost on him. That he's just yeah. like, to him that's normal to drink that much sugar in your kool
1: yeah. Um, it was so. Me and my co-host, we have the exact same thoughts on Bert. We think that he is as a guy. He's a funny guy. He's a great guest on podcasts, you know what I mean? Actually, he's terrible. He's terrible because he always uh, he's a one-upper.
0: He always has a story that's basically like, "Trump, your story," and he's just like he's the worst. He if he's not in the story, it's like it didn't happen. Like, you know what I mean? It's like he's got so much FOMO to the point like I guarantee you like I don't know the man. I'm not going to shit talk him, but I would not be surprised if his kids are in, like, seven forms of therapy to, like, deal with this freaking lunatic. Like, the guy is, like, on the... I mean, I know he works hard for his family because he's on the road so much, but it's like... Oh, yeah. He's
1: probably very absentee to Father. Oh, uh, he's been posting a lot of, like, uh, family, like, uh, FaceTimes that he does and stuff like that, so... Although
0: it's actually kind of funny. I've heard him say on, like, Rogan and stuff and on Segura and his podcast, there's many times where he uses a lot of Material of, of like what his kids say and do for a special, and like he does not even give it a second thought. They have to come to him and be like, "Hey, man, no, you can't tell that, story. that yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's so
1: over yeah. the line. It's so invasive." He's like, "Well, that's funny." But he's he's an example of right, like, but anyhow, One of the first ways me and him were like, "All right, this show's gonna work." When we got together was because. We both agree that he he himself as a just a man is a funny man. Yeah, but as a standup, he's not funny at all, really. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I like him, so it's funny. We have this uh, girl who lives out in LA who does these little entertainment reports for us, and when she'll call in, we'll talk to her, and uh, she does movie reviews. And uh, we were kind of hoping that she'd review the machine because we wanted to hear what she said about it. And I'm listening to the She did a report this morning. She just pre recorded this one. And she was coming up on the machine. And I was like, oh, shit, she's going to talk about the machine. Get ready. And uh, so we're listening to it. And she goes, uh, you know, Burt Kreitcher's machine is out. And she was like, didn't really scream for critics, but I'm sure you'll like it if, if you're a Burt Kreitcher fan. If you're a Burt Kreitcher fan, get some help. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Just
2: started losing control. <laughs> you know, like that's pretty funny.
1: You <laughs> though I kind of like him.
0: He's, he's just a character. Like he's definitely a guy you want to go drinking with. But
1: I just, I think that's he, what I think. It that's why I think I like him so much is that when you like follow him on social media, you're waiting for the next thing that you know. What I wait for hmm. when I well, follow him. The next thing that he's gonna post, is gonna piss you off, so I can send it to you. Why'd you get all mad? Like when we were in Minnesota, uh, Mini, uh, Milwaukee, or whatever, he had that picture of him with Arnold. He was making that dumb face, and I showed you, like, hey, look, a Bird's hanging out with Arnie today. He's like, and you're like, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's so annoying.
1: Well, it's funny because you look at somebody like to bring it back to Canada.
0: I listened to a, uh, a podcast with Jay Baruchel because he's promoting that new Blackberry movie, and. Uh, one of the reasons, like, he kind of had his big swing to be, like, the next Rogan, because, you know, in the span of, like, a year or two, he was, like, he was in, like, She's Out of My League, uh, How to Train Your Dragon, and there was a couple, like, I think he did the Trotsky around the same time, and so yeah. on both sides of the border, he was headlining movies, and and then uh, Man Seeking Woman came out around the same, like, a couple years after, uh, which is a really funny show if, if you've ever seen it. It's very absurdist,
1: kind of, like, odd humor
0: it's strange um, like
1: it's a world where like human and humans and monsters live together
0: right yeah the first episode his sister sets him up with a literal troll not just an yeah. anuggo, an actual troll <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: but uh so but the problem was is jay is so like introverted and just like doesn't like he's like i want to act but i don't want to do all this other stuff and i'm like that speaks to me like I'm picturing, that's why, it, and uh, that's yeah. it's, like, Bert's the exact opposite. He's just like he's like. I wish I could just fast forward all this crap on set, just so I can ham it up on the red carpet and all the post
1: parties where I take my shirt off. I think uh, what's it called? We're talking about Jay Baruchel. All right, we we got lost here. It's what we, we do. This was supposed to be a simple. I had two things to say. one about each of them? <laughs> what I was going to say about Baruchel was I think my favorite part of the movie. Uh, this is the end is uh, just, I think the movie peaks at, like, that opening party scene. Because I liked watching him, this introvert, interact with all these people and him not having a good time at all, whereas he got Michael Sarah doing cocaine and getting slapped by Rihanna and You know, it's just chaos around him, and he's having a horrible time. I liked the opening of it, well, and I still like the movie. It's just it, the, the, the best part of it, I thought, was at the beginning. Of course you of do,
0: because there's that scene where Jason Segel's talking to, uh, what's his face, Kevin Hart?
1: He's making fun of how we're making fun. Yeah, he's
0: like, so there's a scene where my wife comes in. He's like, did you eat all the cake? And he's like, rrr, rrr. when I looked over at you, you're like, ah, I do that show. I'm like, Shut
1: up. <laughs> well, I think my favorite part of that, I've always told you, is that where he's like, uh, uh, Craig Robinson's going to be there. And he's like, Oh, I don't know who that is. You don't know who Craig Robinson is? He's hilarious, sweating. But... <laughs> For some reason, I don't think it's funny that he... He loves this guy so much that Jay doesn't know. It's funny. Uh, but then I was going to say about well, Kreitcher. is Actually, that was another thing that me and Cale uh, were talking about because he heard that the, the machine was opening to like near-empty theaters. It's not going to make a whole lot of money. And I'm like, because, you know, they, they got to have a bartender in there. They've got to turn watching the machine into a, a Burt Kreischer level experience <laughs> well, People don't want to go see it.
0: Yeah, because basically, what he should have done, they should have done a limited release, or he should have done what Kevin Smith always does with his films, where he turns it into an event. People pay more for the money, but uh, you know, you do a Q and A, or you know, you watch it with the person. You know, he should have done a tour of at least a dozen mo- uh, like theaters to do that type of shit, but.
1: I would. Here's how I'd watch The Machine. You pay 50 bucks. Maybe that's a little too much. Open bar. You do the Bert Kreitzer thing, right? And then you watch the movie after like an hour of this open bar. And then everyone's good and lit up and they're having drinks in the theater. And, yeah. You know. You make an event like that. That's what I would have thought about. You know, oh,
0: well. Did, did you know that Jay... That whole, his whole beef with Jonah Hill wasn't totally out of the realm of realism and that he actually, I guess him and Jonah did have a problem with each other or maybe Jay had a problem with Jonah in real life. I don't know what it is. I'd like to. Jonah
1: Hill was kind of like the new, the new guy, because you got to remember like Siegel and Rogan worked together on, um, what's it called? Uh, and Franco too. Oh, Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks. And then, um, Baruchel was old friends with, uh. With Rogan so he got um, Jay into different projects with all the other guys
0: but they were all together in uh, knocked,
1: knocked up, showed up one day. I, I think that might have been where he started showing up in like their things you know what I mean because he uh, you think of it before knocked up he did like a couple like Adam Sandler movies
0: well you had that and, weird scene and uh, he was the creepy customer and 40 uh, year old virgin hmm. when uh, what's
1: her face has the store so that might have been where he started but like he like if you look at his early roles it's not with them like he uh like i said he i think it's like so like he was in like grandma's boy and uh, accepted with justin long he had a big role in and uh he uh what else did he do he had like minor roles like he was in click i think for like a blink you miss a cameo and stuff like that. Like he did just small. He was an I Heart Huckabee's in a real like quick cameo.
0: Can you imagine and, if uh, instead of Michael Sarah was Jay Baruchel and uh, Jonah Hill and Superman?
1: No, but you know why Michael Sarah worked in that role because he looks like a high school student. That's
0: true. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I like that Seth Rogen was like, uh, <laughs> I told my wife we're gonna cast Jonah in this movie. She's like, he's like forty five years old.
2: <laughs> was cast
1: uh, yeah, and uh, it's funny. I do think it's funny that they hired uh, McLovin just because uh, Johnny Hill hated him so much.
0: <laughs> yeah, because he was like
1: oh, stepping all over my lines. He's terrible, and they're like, "Oh, okay, he gets the job." They watch his audition; it's really awkward. He's like, huh? Huh? "Yeah, okay." He did not have any acting. No, I think that was before that. I believe the. Um, picture they used for his ID where he's like it was like the headshot he gave them. But she took him like a photo booth before he got up there. Yeah. Uh, I can't he's picture. Doing a, he's doing a reality show now in like England. Really? Where uh a bunch of celebrities do like this space training. And it's hand there's a bunch of football players involved. Like Richard Sherman's in it and uh yeah, one of the pe- one of them is, 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 like, I guess the prize is that they get to go to space or something like that.
0: I can't picture anyone else but him in freaking Super Superbad. That movie, was, he was so
1: perfect for that movie. Oh, that, that movie, like I always say, is the only movie that truly encapsulated my high school experience. Although Alex says I need to watch uh, Good Boys. Yeah. He said that's a good, uh, that kind of sums it up, too.
0: But that's so, that's uh, also, they're like grade six. They're, like, going on the it's, – it's super bad, but it's them going into the cusp of middle school because you, you remember what it was like for us in middle school. Like, that was when we started to bring new people into our group because uh, yeah. they brought in people from all the schools in town. So, our, uh, you know, you got to have classes with people you wouldn't usually have classes with. So, I mean, I it's, it's another milestone movie just like Superbad was, you know, before you part for college.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was a weird time. Grade seven and eight but you learn a lot about yourself that's about. anyway uh yeah so what an episode <laughs> <laughs> there we covered everything it took us two tries um if you've seen the burke kreitzer movie give us a review uh brian you were you were telling me these oh it's not getting very good reviews I'm like it's getting like seven out of tens and Bs, and those are fine reviews
0: Well, it has thirty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So only thirty. Oh, that's 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 not very good, then. IMDb. So the fans, all his drunken buffoon fans, probably gave it like a (laughs) thumbs up or seven out of ten or whatever. But (laughs) I guarantee you, all the friggin' people who leave reviews on IMDb are probably like their profile picture looks exactly like Bert. Like, go go on Bert's IMDb page right now. Look up his picture. He looks like an asshole. He looks – he's literally holding his belly like he's freaking pregnant. He's got it like one Ooh. hand here, one hand down there. He looks like an asshole. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> IMDB.com. Here we go.
0: While Ted's doing that, I will preface the next episode. If you still hang out with us and want to tune in, give us a review. Please share. I forgot to update our account for a bit, so I think our uh, system went offline. <laughs> but uh, it's back up and running. Um, so yeah, leave a review, share with your friends, follow us on Instagram at
1: Canada FM. Yeah, he's got a. He's at a, like a distillery. He's wearing a hat, no shirt, and he's like hugging his belly.
0: Yeah, but look at look look where his hands are. It looks like he's holding like a like a freaking pregnant woman's belly.
1: Yeah, and then I'm looking at just on. Uh, on mute, him doing a stand-up. He's not wearing any shirt. He's basically like doing a Dane Cook across the stage where he's doing all these spastic movements. Also, he also looks like he's really out of breath and is having a hard time keeping his balance.
0: <laughs> Probably because he's yeah. in this shit face. Now he's
1: just, doing a bunch of karate kicks. Oh,
0: he's so big. Big <laughs> He's very big. <laughs> you know, this is one of the things that is still for the life of me. got a little jig. For the life of me, I don't get, like, Rogan yeah. Rogan told that doofus Brendan Schaub one day, he said, bro, you keep losing, stop doing fighting. You're not a fighter anymore. Like, he told him. Like, you think that he wouldn't give Bert blunt honesty about his stand-up? Be like, you're not funny. You're just a personality. But uh, oh. all his friends almost act like, I mean, I know he's not the biggest wheel out of all of them. Like, I think Segura gets bigger crowds and stuff, but, like, and Rogan sells out arenas, but like, like they're almost like you can't say sycophantic because no 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 one's leeching, ah, no one's leeching off the other one, but like yeah, how much that hurts when you're wearing shorts? Yeah, I burn myself every week. I always ash on myself by mistake. I'm like, oh! Ah.
1: but like yeah, All no, right, I want to get a bottle. Gonna add a little more here. Do we wrap this up yet? Wow. You know, I was talking to somebody last week who's
0: listening to a couple of our podcasts. He's like, wow, your friend really interrupts you a lot. And I was like – I do. And I was editing this—the the first part that we recorded uh, earlier yeah. today. You interrupted me like seven times. Just stepping right this over is,
1: This is also our give and take in real life. <sighs> yes. We interrupt each other constantly.
0: Uh, the scales of, interrupting, of interruption are a little slanted in your favor, my friend. <laughs> anyway, fuck it.
1: We're signing off. Planet Smashes are next week. Next week, we got to figure out if we want to do. I think we should do this in two parts. Oh, there's nine albums. Yeah, so let's do like the first five, and then we'll do the last. <laughs> <coughs> Sad, this cough is not even from a cigar. Be smoking cigar. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Anyway. uh Yeah, that was fun. (sighs) We've had lots and lots and lots and lots (laughs) and lots (laughs) of fun. But now the time has come
2: to say... Yeah!